Well, after a year of missing our annual weekend Q&A, we are back this year, and we're glad that we have a chance to address whatever questions you might have that you think would be helpful for your pastor to weigh in on, something biblical, something doctrinal, theological, something related to the Christian life. And uh, that's what we give one weekend a year to, and this is the weekend. So if you came for a sermon, sorry. This is what you get. So it'll be a patchwork of sermonic concepts. How about that? All right, we got three guys with microphones that are going to wander around. Uh, they're going to hang on to the microphone, so you don't need to take it into your hand, but I would like you to stand up, speak into that microphone, and ask whatever question you might have. And as one person is asking a question and I'm answering it, just be sure to wave down someone else that's got a microphone. There should be three here in the room. So let's just dive right in, why don't we? And we will see what your first question is. I see hands up back there. I think I did. Yeah, in the back. Always got to start in the back, don't we? So we'll see what this looks like this year. And while we're going to the back with Pastor Rod, got two more microphones here. Once we get a question asked here, we'll pass the microphone around. Be sure to wave them down while this is going on. Yeah. Hi. Fire away. Yeah. So um, one of my friends um, just was talking with her. And she told me that she's a Christian. We've had all these doctrinal conversations together. And one day she tells me that she has same-sex attraction. Just wondering, I mean, it kind of caught me off guard when we were talking. Just curious, how would you advise someone that's in the church but struggles with that sin? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think we need to treat it as we would any serious sin because it is a serious sin to transgress what God has laid out as the sexual boundaries and sexual expression. So... If someone had a confession to make about some other sexual sin, we would address it in the same way. And that is that we want there to be confession and repentance and accountability, and uh, that can be provided in the body of Christ. And I think that's, what, that's how we approach it. It doesn't matter if the world wants to applaud this particular sin as they're doing now, and everyone's cheering everybody on for engaging in it. God is clear. He's revealed his word. We're all going to answer to him. So, yeah, it's... It, it, Securing confession, which is agreeing with God that it's wrong, which is really one of the hardest steps in our modern culture. Repentance, which is forsaking it and saying it's wrong and I'm turning from it. And accountability, the body of Christ helping these people work through whatever their problem might be. If I have a serious temptation and attraction to steal things and be a shoplifter or beat my wife or whatever it might be, you're going to be there as accountability partner. And I hope if it's not going well with your accountability, then you seek to broaden the circle and have someone else that might be better at this to uh, step in and help you provide that accountability. All right, do we got another question? Hi, Pastor Mike. Hi. Um, I have a question. When on 1 Timothy 2.12, it says women aren't supposed to teach men or have authority, excess authority over them. Mm -hmm. How do you explain colleges, our Christian colleges, that are teaching biblical stuff to men and women? When a woman is a professor, for instance, Correct. in a college, right? Yeah, um, and, and, and there's a good debatable discussion to have. We believe, as I think uh, most people that have a high view of Scripture believe, although I should be careful with even saying that, that the pastoral authority, the teaching post in the church, is a gender-specific role. You have to be a man to be an elder, um, presbyteros, a poimen, a pastor, episkopos, the Greek word, an overseer, bishop. So we don't have women pastors like some famous churches down the road. Uh, we say that is a gender-exclusive issue because every time we see that come up, whether it's 1 Corinthians 11, 
First uh, Timothy two, requirements for an elder in in Titus chapter one, First Timothy three. All of these passages talk about the issue of male leadership in the church in that top role of the authority over the mixed congregation of men and women being exclusively tied to the creation order. And that doesn't change, and that's not cultural. Therefore, we're stuck with that. Just like God has said women are going to have babies and men are not going to have babies, um, when it comes to the distinguishing of roles in the church, God wants men, and he roots that in a creation pattern to be male. Now, in the universities, when you're going to teach someone uh, to become a pastor, for instance, that may not be the exclusive role of that school. Think about it, right? You could have a school that is a Christian school teaching um, students to become all kinds of things within the, the breadth of Christendom, doing all kinds of things within the, the, the church. Um, I don't see a problem with having female professors that are teaching in that organization um, because they're preparing people for all kinds of things. If you now had a pastoral ministries class that is taught by a female, I think, okay, that to me doesn't make sense as something that you would do. We wouldn't do that at CBI, for instance, because it's a gender-specific role, and I think there's a denial of that, of that the, the, the complementary roles when you, when you make that decision within a school. So it would depend on what they teach, right? If you're teaching Greek paradigms even, you know, every pastor needs to learn Greek and Hebrew. Uh, you know, there's some great female linguists that could teach that in a school, and I don't think that's an issue. Now, good men and women disagree with me on that, but um, I just think when it comes to pastoral theology, pastoral leading, uh, expository preaching classes, I think that should be led by men, even in the universities, Bible schools, and seminaries. But, um, yeah, you look at any... Christian liberal arts college, even if they have a high view of the distinguishing of genders within the leadership of the church. In other words, they believe that the pastorate is male only allowed in scripture. Um, they're training people for all kinds of things. And you could see a Christian liberal arts college having several female professors teaching a variety of topics. So that, that's not an issue. And women, you need to realize this is an issue of authoritative teaching in the church over men and women. That that's very different than women, for instance, in our church. We have great expositors that teach here, hundreds of women every week. They're great expositors, they teach women, as Titus says, right? The older women, in that sense, the idea of mature and learned teaching the younger, those that can receive that instruction. So we're not about limiting women in ministry. It's just the specific role of the exercising of authority in the church setting in a mixed congregation. Yes, Pastor Rod. Hi, Mike. Hi. It's John. Hi, John. Uh, I really want to say that um, I feel privileged uh, uh, being close to so many uh, Christians who are excited about God and Jesus. However, um, I've just become a, a great fake Christian because I don't feel that same way. Don't feel the same way as what? I have... I'm not born again and oh, saved. Okay, all right. I've... Um, experienced a lot of this fallen world, yeah. struggles right. and unbelievable pain. Yeah. And uh, people say, sweet Jesus, and I think, I live in the real world. Um, I just don't see um, uh, Jesus or God's love for me. Don't, don't see that he loves you. That's what you're saying. Right. Well, if you're always going to measure whether or not God loves you based on how much suffering he's willing to put in your life, then 
yeah, you're right. You'll never believe that God loves you because your life's going to be full of pain, disease, and then you're going to die. So if that's your measure of God's love, then you're going to believe that God does not love you. I believe that God loves me. I have plenty of pain, maybe not as much as yours, plenty of disappointment, plenty of opposition, plenty of criticism. I'm going to get sick and die or be in a terrible accident and I'm going to die. Plenty of suffering ahead for me. I'm not measuring whether or not God loves me based on how much pain he allows in my life because that's not how it works in the Bible. But God says he has promised us pain. Matter of fact, his most treasured servants in the scripture suffered greatly. So I think you've got to make sure that you're not using that as the benchmark as to whether or not God loves you, how much pain he's brought into your life. I'd say there's a lot of Christians in this room that live in the real world. I think we all do. Not many monks here or nuns. Uh, we would love to talk to you afterwards about how you can live in the real world, experience the pain that God has appointed for us, and yet still um, recognize God's love. And that all comes down to, humanly speaking, your response to that. So um, I think a personal conversation, and I'm sure there's a few people on the edge of their seat love to talk to you afterwards about how to work through that. Thank you, John. In the back. Hi, Pastor. Hi. Uh, question. How can one justify the celebration of Christmas and Easter when they're historically rooted in paganism, especially when God has specifically said not to worship him as other gods? Yeah. What's, what is today, by the way? What is today? What day of the week is it? Saturday. Are you a pagan? I'm not. Why do you worship Saturn? Well, that would be off. Do you worship? You called it Saturday. Why would you use the word Saturday, which is based on the worship of Saturn? Correct. So that would so, be off the Roman calendar, not the Jewish. Why calendar. are you using the Roman calendar? I ask you what day it was. You use the Roman enumeration of the day. See, here's my point. I'm making my point. My point is, you're assigning guilt by association. Okay, you're wearing a ball cap. You know who designed the ball cap? Do you know? Do you know why people wore it indoors, for instance? Men did? Do you have any clue? If I expose the background to that, see, would you then say, oh, I can't do that anymore? You could if your conscience was violated. And I understand that. And if you don't want to celebrate Easter or Christmas, don't. Right? Whatever is not of faith, it's sin, Romans 14. So you're not obligated in any way as a Christian to do those things. Uh, but knowledge should not take from you things that you can glorify God in, like wearing a ball cap, like saying, I'll meet you for church Saturday night. All of that can be utilized. That's called redeeming those things for God's glory. So the Bible says, if you want to escape association with evil, Paul said, you'd have to leave the world. And since that's not our calling to leave the world, it's to live in the world. He says, that's all we can do is redeem the pagan things around us. There's nothing wrong with Christmas. It was a celebration of, I mean, it's Christ's mass, I get that, but it's Roman Catholics, some would say. Fine, we're not Catholics, right? I'm not going to a mass on December 25th, but I'm going to celebrate the incarnation of Christ. So, um, and, and you should not, according to Romans 14, you should not judge me for that because you're not my master. And the Bible says you have no right to do that. So, all the arguments that are made from the book of Jeremiah that take cutting down a tree and setting it up as your God, that's what we're doing with the Christmas tree. All of that is just super bad hermeneutics. It's not what the Bible teaches. And I can play guilt by association all day long with you. 
I can talk about the homosexual that made your coffee table, for instance. If I found that out, I could do research and absolutely paralyze your life. If your standard is guilt by association, if you are associated with something that has a pagan root, right, then I can't do it. And that's not how we can live the Christian life. That's not how we're taught to live the Christian life. Also, go into the marketplace and eat whatever is put before you, even if it was dedicated to a God, right? Now, I'm not going to do it if someone is stumbling and say, here, eat this meat that was sacrificed to an idol, right? So I'm not going to say, hey, I know you're stumbling over Christmas. I'm going to invite you over to my house. We're going to sing Christmas carols and decorate the tree. Fine. You don't have to come to my house on Christmas, and you don't have to even call it Christmas. But you can't say, well, Christians can't utilize that, sanctify that, redeem that for the glory of God. Because if you do that, all I'm saying is we can go all day long and you'll be in a robe, in your closet, with your knees against your chest, saying, I can't do anything because it's all associated with paganism. Because so many things are. Sitting in church at one time was considered wrong. And here you are sitting in church. They had no chairs in church. You stood in church. I mean, that was, I mean I, we could talk about why those things came to be and the compromises that people said they were. Music, right? Even the way we did music. Gregorian chants were assumed to be holy because they were not melodic, right? There was something about the expression of reverence. And now all of a sudden, we don't care. Why? Because you don't make the guilt by association. Well, at a time they did. When Martin Luther used bar tunes and brought them into the church, put Christian lyrics on it, people stumbled over that. You didn't even think about that if we sang Mighty Fortresses Our God tonight. So all I'm saying is do not live your life by guilt by association, right? Just because something has a pagan origin, like Sunday tomorrow morning, and I call it Sunday, even though it was the worship of the sun, Roman calendar was all about that. I, I'm not worshiping the sun tomorrow. I'm worshiping Jesus Christ. So I'm just saying you can't play the game. Those who play the game play it very selectively and they impose their knowledge. And sometimes I find, and I'm not saying it's you because you may be asking for someone else, it's a lot of pride. I know something you don't know. I know about Saman. I know about uh, you know, the Druids. I know about you know, the, the veneration of evergreen trees. I, we, yeah, we can uncover knowledge and you can say you're smarter than me because you know it. But once you know it, if you're saying because it has an association with a pagan root, I can't do it. And I'm saying, you don't want to start that. So redeem it for the glory of God. But if you have a conscience problem, right, then don't do it. Don't do it. Some people will not come to church here on a Saturday because they grew up with this high reformed view of Sunday as the replacement of the Sabbath, which was a command in Exodus 20. Therefore, they can't come to church that violates their conscience doesn't violate my conscience. And like Hebrews 14, or Romans 14 says, some people may consider one day as more important than the other, and everybody else says they're all the same. Let each person be convinced in his own mind. But you can't judge another man's servant on those secondary issues. And he says, don't quarrel about those things. So when someone says, I, don't, I think Christmas trees are, are pagan, I'm saying, well, then you better not be buying one, right? But I'm going to go and I hope I get a good deal on one. I mean, you just, you, you, need, you just need to say, oh, then, you know, the Lord bless you, right? Because it's not a guilt by association game. And sometimes new knowledge does that to us. And I'd say just in time, you'll recognize everything can be traced with dots to paganism or Satan or the world or worship of Caesar or whatever it might be. That'd be my answer to that. Uh, hi, Pastor Mike. Hi. Um, how do I tell a non-Christian or a Christian um, that they're sinning without offending them? You often cannot. 
Yeah. Um, you often cannot. Yeah. Uh, and, and really, offense, there are ways you can make sure you do offend them by saying it really rudely and insensitively. But I would say this, how would I want someone to point out sin to me, knowing I want to please the Lord? How would I want someone to do that to me? Okay, I wouldn't want them to come up and say it tersely and turn around and walk off and call me a name. I would want them to try and help me see that in a way that would be a little bit more respectful, a little bit more sympathetic. And that's what the Bible says when there is someone who's caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, you know, you restore them. But you ought to do it very carefully, keeping an eye on yourself. So I just think we need to be careful how we do it. But if my goal is, kind of like John was asking, if my goal is I will only do this if they don't get offended, then you'll never do what God asked us to do because you need to, right? If you love someone, depending on the relationship and where you are, if you have a friend and they're in sin, you need to point it out to them. You may offend them, right? Nathan went to David and he laid out, he was strategic and thoughtful and laid out a parable and said, that's you, David. And God had prepared David to be able to say, you're right and led him to repentance. And that's what you're praying for. And want, don't want to win the argument. Want to win the person, right? Win them over. And that, I think it's about motive, but no, you're going to offend people. Just do your best to make sure it's the truth that offends them. Okay, in the back. Uh, Pastor Mike, how would you address the question uh, if someone says, if God knows everything, why do I need to pray about anything? And if I pray for something more than once, am I just babbling and not trusting in God? Okay. Yeah. Uh, Jesus said you should always pray and never give up. He said, right, seek, right, and I, I will let myself be found by you. Right? Back in the Old Testament, the New Testament, he says, seek and knock and ask, and, and I'll answer, and I'll open the door, and I'll give it to you. So you ask why, because God said to. It would be like my kid when I said, clean, clean your room, if he's got all these reasons why that doesn't make any sense, right? If I said, if I said vacuum the floor, and they said, well, I know, I just learned that you just told mom we're going to rip the carpet up in, in next year. I don't care what you know and what you think you know about my plan. I've asked you to do something. And the reason I pray is because God asked me to pray. And the reason I repeat my prayers is because God asked me to. He also tells me to check my motives. And when Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 uh, prays about this thorn in the flesh. He says he prayed three times, and then he got it. Like, God's grace is going to be sufficient. There's a reason for this. It's about humbling me, and he stopped asking. Moses kept asking about going into the promised land. And at one point, I mean, he's had the advantage of having this relationship with God, like face-to-face, -face, and that's what, how he was described. But God said to him, stop asking me that. So there's a time to stop praying, but you've got to have a reason to stop praying. Like, I think God wants me to stop praying. The default is keep praying, always keep praying, keep praying. Check your motives, but keep praying. So yeah, we can play games with God and say, if you know what's going to happen, why would I ever pray? If you've determined this all, why am I? Because he told you to. You know, I've had seminary students say to me, well, if God is going to save whoever he's chosen to save, why would I ever share the gospel with them? Why am I going to share the gospel to them if they're dead in their transgressions and sins? I can't convince them. God's going to have to do it. So why would I do it? Well, because God said. He's not only appointed the end, the purpose, he's also appointed the means, and the means is prayer. And 
in the other analogy, and it means is evangelism. So we do what he tells us to do, and what he tells us to do is to pray and to keep on praying and never lose heart. Unless, of course, it's a bad motive that's uncovered, James chapter 4, right? You want to spend it on your pleasures. 2 Corinthians 12, you find out that, no, I think there's a reason here that I should stop praying because I see why it's happening, and I see God's will in this, and then I stop. So, yeah, but you keep praying because you told us to. And that's too simple. I'm just saying you can have a theological thought about God's sovereignty or his providence, but you can use that theological thought in an unbiblical way. Don't use biblical truths in unbiblical ways. And I know you're using, someone is, I mean, theoretically, a biblical truth in an unbiblical way when they stop doing what the Bible clearly says. Yep. Hey, Pastor Mike. Hi. Uh, Listen to songs and stuff we sing here recently. I've seen the words uh, "Wait upon the Lord" in quite a few of them, and I just want to make sure I understand it correctly because it seems pretty simple just to be patient. But is that all it is, or is there more to waiting on the Lord? Yeah, I mean there is more biblically to the phrase, um, and there's an active sense of dependence and trust and expression of trust. Waiting for us is such a passive activity, but waiting is in Scripture a more active involvement in expressing my trust in God, even in praying, for instance, right? To always persist in prayer, right? Um, those kinds of truths are, are reminding us that as we wait, we are, here's a strong word in English, beseeching. Um, this great Greek word, it's a strong word. I, I'm, I'm waiting, but I'm not waiting passively. I'm waiting with not only an active trust, but I'm waiting with with involved prayer and engaged hearts. And so, yeah, waiting on the Lord is clearly related to time, right? I'm saying God is going to come through, but I'm not going to lose heart. I just finished writing a little something for Focal Point and a bunch of the Psalms. And so many of the Psalms, I kept going and picking a bunch of these I wanted to write on. And so many of them just deal with that issue. It goes from, even Psalm 73 is a good example. A a passivity of frustration, right? This isn't working out for me. And then by the end of the psalm, it's like, okay, I get it now. And the working through of that, why God is not answering my prayers, gets to the end of like, he's worked through the waiting, right? He's, he's sh shifted his mind and his thoughts and he was doubting and now he's trusting and he was passive and, and, and hopeless and now he's hopeful and he's confident. That's the kind of shifting around of, of our own hearts in waiting on the Lord that I think in Scripture is informing that it's a much more active thing than a passive thing. Like if you're standing in the DMV line, you're waiting passively, right? I'm not doing anything to make this thing move forward. I'm not really working on anything. I, it, it's, it's different when we're waiting on the Lord to come through on a situation. Yeah, that's a good question. And maybe a good commentary even on any of the passages uh, that deal with the phrase waiting on the Lord. Right, Isaiah 40 is a classic example. And a good commentary on Isaiah, one of our books in our, our commentaries in our CBI library, those would dig into that idea, especially in the Hebrew concept of waiting actively. Yeah. Hey, Pastor Mike. Hi. Um, I'm new. I've only been here about six weeks. but um, So my question might be a little elementary. But uh, the Bible said that faith without works is dead. Can you explain the relationship between faith, works, and salvation? And then as a follow-up, how does one know that they are saved? Right. By your question. Right. The, the works. Yeah. 
and, and the way we describe it around here is that a lot of the um, cult groups are clearly teaching that if you have the truth of the gospel and you respond rightly to it with faith and then you do good works, then that equals salvation. That's how the cult said it. So a lot of the people in response to that in the evangelical world trying to keep faith or uh, grace intact. No, this is a free gift of God. They started to teach, well, no, it's the gospel and you're responding rightly to it by trusting in him and that equals salvation and stop talking to me about good works. Um, but the biblical equation to be rightly balanced is to say it's the gospel of truth, right, about Christ. It's trusting in that. That equals salvation, but the only way the equation adds up is if with that salvation, you have good works. And so that equation adds up biblically. The cultic equation of the works being before the equal sign, that does not add up. And the evangelical response in trying to protect grace does not add up by saying, oh, it's just the gospel plus faith and that equals salvation. It doesn't matter about your life. No, it does matter about your life. If you don't have the, the works produced out of that, in other words, if your life is not changed, the trajectory of your life is not changed, right? Then, then according to the book of 1 John, you're lying to yourself and you're lying to everybody else. So works has to be a part of the equation, right? Even the thief on the cross that had hardly any time to produce any works is there trying to rebuke the other criminal for dissing on Christ. I mean, he didn't get any baptism. He never gave a check to you know, the synagogue or to the church. He, he did no life of charity, but even in his last moments, he gets saved at the end of his life, and he's starting to show that his life has changed. I, I prayed for this guy and went to his nursing home and shared the gospel with him because the daughter went to our church and said, please go share the gospel with him. I've tried everything. And so I went, and he knew he had only a few days to live, and I shared with him, and he put his trust in Christ. I thought, well, that was weird, you know. Um, He's heard this from his family for so long, but I show up and, and he puts his trust in Christ. He dies like four days later. And I, I think I did his funerals, I recall. This was many years ago. And the people, the family members told me, the people that were there in the nursing home and the nurses that worked with him in this place saw such a radical difference in the last four days of his life. And I was like, there's a good example of the fact, how many good works do you have to do to be saved? Zero. But to be saved is then to begin producing good works, right? And so that's, that's, that's the equation. And, and if, if that's the case, a lot of people say to me in my evangelism, well, then I just want to get saved at the end of my life, right? I'll just get saved at the end because it's not about good works. Okay. No. Because number one, there's two problems with that. Number one, you don't know when you're going to die, right? Those stories are neat when you know your end is coming and you can do deathbed conversions. That's, that would be really cool. But the Bible says, according to 1 Corinthians 3, the works that we do between our conversion and our home going are building up for us, right? All these treasures, right? The Bible says, and we're going to want those, by the way. Just like you would say, well, I just want to be, I want to be an American and be free. Great. I, I think you'd want a, money to pay your mortgage and food and be nice to eat better food than, you know, than, than top ramen or whatever. So you, you've got rewards that'll matter in eternity. And the Bible says that you want to produce as many as you can. Jesus put it this way, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. How do you do that? Well, by doing good works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, classic text, saved by grace, right? Faith, not of ourselves, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. And we finished with verse 9, but it keeps going. And we are, right? God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's the point. That's why he can say in James 
chapter 2, faith without works is dead. Can that faith save him? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Why? Because real faith has works. We're saved by faith alone, right? But saving faith is never alone. It always brings good works. And the whole contrast there is the demons, they believe, they have good theology, but they are not converted, and real converted hearts produce good works. That is not too fundamental of a question. That question could be asked every week, and we need to hear it. Yeah, great question. Another question. So my buddy at work, he, um, we, we've been talking for about two weeks, and he's a professing believer, and he believes that um, with the atonement of Christ, there's physical healing here and now and spiritual healing. And so my response was that I agree with him, but not that it's here and now, but eschatologically, after the resurrection, we're healed, because of, partly because of the atonement. How would you, he didn't buy that answer. So how would you answer someone that says that? Take him to a cemetery and walk him through it <laughs> and say, I wonder how many people believe like you did that are here. Because I'm thinking, when do I stop saying, okay, the healing is no longer in the atonement because I die? I mean, I just think death is the problem with that theology, right? right? At what point do I say, oh, it's no longer in, in, in the atonement, the healing, right? If healing is in the atonement, then we're going to have some really super old 2,000-year-old Christians, right? But we don't. Why? Because the healing you think is in the atonement is in the atonement. 1 Corinthians 15, it's called the resurrected body that's impervious to disease and death. So, yes, there is healing in the atonement, but it's not here and now. And that, that, to me, is overturned not only by every experience the Christian has had for the last 2,000 years, but even within the pages of Scripture. Passage I quoted, 2 Corinthians 12. The thorn in the flesh. Where's the healing? Right? Here, here is Timothy with stomach problems. Paul has to say, hey, take some medicinal use of this wine for your stomach and your frequent ailments. This is his protege. Why isn't he saying your healing is in the atonement? It doesn't even come close to squaring with anything in the narrative of the New Testament. Uh, and it's all simply a quotation of Isaiah 53, by his stripes we were healed. Uh, yeah, we are healed, right? Just like we were enslaved and now we're free. We're not talking about a literal enslavement. We're not talking about a literal illness. We're talking about the fact that I was dead in Christ, I was diseased with sin, and now I'm not. And all of that, will it be actually literally realized? Of course it will, right, in the resurrection. But um, I just have a problem with people saying, because I think, well, how long does that theology last? How long is it going to last for you? Till you're 200? Maybe? No. And that's why I just, I, I, I think it's such, it's so short-sighted, right? Yes, in the atonement is purchased a brand new world, but the world still has hurricanes, right? Just like if you, is a new world order in the atonement? Yes. Well, why don't you claim that around your house so it never rains on your house? or you never have a storm, right? It just, it, it, it doesn't follow. It's the most self-defeating argument because there's no 300-year-old Pentecostals around. Right. Yeah, yeah, in the back. Hi, Pastor Mike. Um, I was just wondering how to um, explain how predestination and free will can coincide um, because to me it just kind of gets a little confusing. Right, it gets confusing because it is confusing. Um, but it doesn't mean it's not true. Any more than if I were to say to you, God is eternal. And I ask you, what was he doing two million years ago? And how long had he been there two, two million years ago? You'd be like, dude, that's starting, to be, that's starting to hurt my head. 
Let's go 10 trillion years ago. 10 trillion years ago, what was God doing? Right? Wasn't he bored by that point? Because he'd been there how long? Well, I don't know. And the way I like to illustrate that is, that how long does it take you to climb out of a bottomless pit? It takes you forever. You can never get out. So that's hard for us because we live within this temporal reality of time. And how can I say God is eternal? Now, no one seems to struggle with that when we sing a song about God's eternality. But once we start talking about his sovereignty, now I've got a problem. Because I don't want to have him determine what I'm having for lunch tomorrow. I want to determine that. Well, wait a minute. If he sovereignly controlled all that, then I feel like, am I a robot? That's not how it feels, right? You feel your way through time. That should be a struggle with a lot of doctrines, right? You, you feel your way through math class even, and you're like, I don't think three equals one. There are a lot of doctrines that blow our brains when it comes to understanding the nature of God. And here's one. God works everything after the counsel of his will, and yet he's created you, and he's got a plan for you, and you are going to make decisions along the way, and he's going to hold you accountable for those decisions because they're going to be real decisions. How do you make real decisions and God still be sovereign? Well, I know, this is how people try to solve it very simply, God looked ahead and saw what I would do, and then he decided to do that. Right? If you want your God to be that small, okay. I, I don't think that's the God of the Bible, though. God does not make his will subservient to our will. Well, I don't want his will to be superior to my will. My will can be superior to your will tonight. I can take out a gun and kill you, and guess what? All your decisions are over from now on. You mean my will can somehow violate your will? Happens every day. Read the crime, the crime blotter. Right? There are people dead today because someone exercised their free will. God has the freest free will because he can decide to do whatever he wants. And he decides to do what he wants. And yes, that in the long run, we look at and say, God accomplishes what he wants to accomplish. And I have a will. And though it's free in the sense that I choose to do what I choose to do, and I'm so free in that decision that God holds me accountable for it, it's all working after God's sovereign plan. How does that work? And, and if you want to ask that question, read Romans 9, 10, and 11. And in that discussion, God says exactly what all of us are going to say. And if God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that God could have this big splash of 10 miracles and the 10 plagues and bring them into the wilderness and write the first five books of the Old Testament and all of this can be for his glory, how can you still hold Pharaoh accountable for his hardening of his heart? And, and Paul's answer is, right, the next 32 chapters of Romans, right? No. He says, who are you to answer back to God? right? Same thing in Job. Job keeps saying, why did this happen to me? And God shows up in chapter 38 and goes, who are you to answer back to me? Just like if you had two hamsters in a cage that are sitting saying, why do those hamsters in the bushes, right? If there are such things, let's call them rats. And they get to do what they want and you put me here. And all I'm saying is God has the right to do what he wants with the creatures that he makes. And he's going to work. He, he decided when you'd be born. What kind of freedom is your will if you can't even choose when you're going to be born? Right? Well, it's, not, it's a will that's very much smaller than God's. So here's the thing. I like to put it this way. God's will is not, con, is not contingent on or subordinate to my will. He doesn't look forward and watch what happened and then goes back and says, well, that's what I'm going to plan. Right? I think my will is subordinate to his. But it is genuine enough for God to say you're culpable that means you're guilty and responsible if you choose the wrong thing. And even in our Christian life, you will be rewarded if you do the right thing. So it's a problem. But I would recommend a couple books to you. Here's the first one I would recommend. 
And I think it's a helpful one because everyone's going to get down to the question I've already asked rhetorically, and that is, why should I share the gospel if God's already decided who's going to be saved? And I would read a little book by J.I. Packer, if you haven't read it yet. It's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. I'm sure it's in our bookstore. You can download it electronically, uh, probably an audio book on it. That is just a helpful book. And what it's going to say to you is basically, here's what the Bible says about God's sovereignty. Here's what God's, the Bible says about our responsibility to respond to the gospel. Those are laid side by side. And he helps us think through how those harmonize in Scripture, even though we may get a Charlie horse thinking them through. And it's a very well done little book, and it's helpful. Two more. I might recommend, if you really want to go deep in all the biblical data, Don Carson, D.A. Carson, wrote a book called called God's Sovereignty, no, Divine Sovereignty and Human Responsibility. It's a little bit more dense, a little more difficult, but he gets all the biblical data, even goes through intertestamental times and thinks through what the rabbis were teaching, and he says, okay, here's the data, the biblical data and even how it was early understood. If you've got a better way to explain this than what the Bible does in laying these side by side, well, then go for that. I might give you a third book, uh, Schreiner, Tom Schreiner, who was just here teaching for us, wrote, uh, was the editor of a book called Still Sovereign. That's in our bookstore as well, Still Sovereign. Uh, and that would be a helpful book. Uh, and it's written by a bunch of different people, a diff bunch of different authors per chapter will help you think through all the little sub-questions you'll have about that. And then as long as I'm quoting books, here's one. Uh, and this one is, is helpful. Doug Wilson wrote a little book called Easy Chair, Hard Words. Easy Chair, Hard Words. And it's a little book, and he puts it in a fictitious uh, uh, dialogue between a Christian and a, and a seasoned pastor. And if you just get into that, he's a clever writer, and he does a good job helping you think through all that. And as long as we're talking about books, um, maybe another one. There's a guy up, I think he's still in Santa Ana, maybe took another church, friend of ours, uh, David Klotfelter. David Klotfelter wrote a little book called um, Sinners in the Hands of a Good God. Sinners in the hands of a good God. Again, all these are about human responsibility and divine sovereignty. If you want to give it 10 minutes of thought and come up with an analogy, like God looked at the tape, just saw what I would do, and so he's just kind of basically waiting to see what I would do in eternity past, then you'll go in through your Christian life with a very simplistic view of this. Or you can dig a little deeper and come to the view that's going to say, that's a hard question. Christians have struggled with it for a long time, but God's will prevails. My will is legitimate enough to be held responsible. Humans are responsible. God is still sovereign. Great question and a lot of reading for you to do now, apparently. Yes. Hi, Pastor Mike. Hi. Okay, so you mentioned before that when Jesus got baptized, he wasn't doing it just as an example. It was more than that. Would you yes. mind touching on that a little bit? Yes, in John it says, when John the Baptist said what you and I would say, if he came to be baptized to you, you'd say, wait a minute, I should be being baptized by you. I shouldn't be baptizing you. Because it was a baptism of repentance. And he knew this, that he's the spotless lamb of God that comes to take away the sin of the world. That's what he said. So when Jesus responds to his apprehension, Jesus says, permit it now so that I might fulfill all righteousness. And part of Jesus's life wasn't to come and die. If so, he could have been beamed down on Thursday and die on Friday. But instead, he had to live this life out doing all the things that God would expect people to do so all those acts of, of active righteousness could be imputed or credited or accounted to us, right? The thief on the cross did not get baptized by John the Baptist. 
How's God going to say, hey, you did all the stuff you were supposed to do? Because Jesus got baptized by John the Baptist. So Jesus fulfilled all the righteousness. It wasn't just, hey, guys, here's how you get baptized. Watch how my head goes down. Follow my example. That's not, you're right. It's way more than an example. It's about him actively fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law, which is what it says in Romans, right? Christ came in the likeness of sinful men that he might, right, fulfill all the, the requirements of the law. And, and the requirements of the law are if the prophet tells you to do something and the prophet in this new covenant time that was transitioning to Christ was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says you need to be baptized. And so Jesus lined up to get baptized. Why? He didn't need to be baptized because he's not repenting of anything. No, but he's doing it for people that need to get baptized. And there's a lot of people in this room probably got baptized with the wrong motive or you had mixed motives. He had the perfect motive to be obedient to the Father, and therefore that baptism and that righteousness is applied to you. It's one of the reasons I can be right before God. Not only because my sin is paid for on the cross, but Christ's active righteousness is now attributed and credited to me. Great question. Hi, Pastor Mike. Uh, I was doing a uh, study in 1 Corinthians 11, and it deals with the first part about the covering and uncovering of a head yeah. in public worship. And then Paul goes into the creation order, which I understand. But when you get to verse 10, it says, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Right. So that sort of threw me a little yeah. loop there. Well, angels are astute observers, matter of fact, that's what they were called in the late Old Testament period. They were called the watchers of all that's going on here. And they, as Jesus said, behold the face of God. Luke 15, right? They, they watch the repentance in the heart. Of, so they're very interested in what goes on in this auditorium tonight. I mean, they are the agents of God, report to God. That's how the Bible describes them. So there is something going on in Corinth that relates to their head, right? That related to their head. And you've got to carefully read 1 Corinthians 11 because the word head is used as a metaphorical who's my leader and the thing on the top of my neck. Both of them were described. One of them had to do with their head, what was on their head, their hair, and whether it honored or dishonored their head, their leader. Right? And in, in the passage, God, God is very interested in seeing the order of authority within the church, within heaven. Right? Father is the head of the son. The son is the head of the church. Right? The husband is the head of the wife. All of these things are head that describes the leadership and authority. The distinction in seeing the difference between men and women was displayed, even as it is now, through the feminine expression of how people presented themselves. And how they wore their hair, right? which I would argue in the passage, and it may even have been that in the ancient Near East, the covering itself, even though I do think as the NIV tries to translate that passage, may be accurate, you could see a woman walking to our church tonight and have a haircut that's not just a cute, bobby, female, short haircut, but one that's making a statement. The women's lib, if you want to put it that way, was strong in first century Corinth. Right? This was a metropolitan, very forward-thinking, progressive society. Something was going on with the way those women came in, were basically casting off the authority of men, saying, you know, I am woman, hear me roar, and now I'm going to come into Christianity, and I'm going to, I'm going to be that way, right? Women are better than men. We do anything they can. We're better, you know. You got all that in our culture today. How they express that through their custom, and there's two words, two words used there, both at the beginning, verse 1, and I think at the end of verse 11, uh, where the word is used, or maybe it's verse 12, where you have the custom, which is a word in Greek that describes how this is lived out. 
And so in the custom of the day, there was something about the arrangement of the hair or the head covering that expressed the fact that we know we're not men and we understand the headship within the church and the leadership within the home, and therefore there's an expression of that. Um, it's, it's something the angels would be offended by if you basically said, I, I don't care what the creation order is. I don't care about any of that. So that's an interesting statement. Much like Hebrews 13, when it talks about angels, you know, you might entertain them unawares, I think is how the uh, ESV puts it. But yeah, angels have a lot more interface with reality than we think. Maybe because of dimensionalism, we could get into that. But there is, they're here, they're present, but they are not material, and they are concerned about whether or not we're honoring the God that they revere and watch the seraphim flying around, crying out, holy, holy, holy. So if you are bucking anything within the biblical system and expressing that through a custom that says, I don't care about that, you offend angels. And that's what's going on there. So read that passage carefully and distinguish between the leadership, there's the eternal principles of, of, of order within the home, within the church, and expressions of that in the customs or the traditions. Two different Greek words, same meaning in terms of the expression of how you show that. Like wearing pants, for instance, at a time was a rebellious act. Well, you know, angels aren't stuck in ancient culture, but they know what is a reflection of rebellion against an order, right? And, and in the Old Testament, for instance, you, a man could not put on woman's clothing and a Woman could not put on man's clothing. That was a, a disordering of God's order. And, and when it was done in an act of rebellion, and not by accident, well, I don't know how that would happen, but um, you were, you, God, God said it's, it's wrong, it's an abomination. And of course, if he thinks it's an abomination, the angels are going to be offended. So that's what's going on in that passage. Got the last one right here. Okay, all right, I'll try. Why are you a pastor? That's a good question. Because I couldn't make it doing anything else. So it's the only job I could get. Yeah, no, um, why am I a pastor? I didn't want to be a pastor. Uh, I grew up in a church and um, thought it was good, but I didn't want to work there. Although I did work there on facilities for several years. or hand, I don't know how long. My dad would know. My mom would know. Um, but that was just a paycheck, so I could spend it on me. But my dad sent me off to Bible school because he required that we do one year at Bible school before we go to the university because he was concerned that all the bad teaching at the university would mess up our commitment to Christ. Well, I didn't really have a commitment to Christ. I had an external conformity to going to church and being a good kid. So when I went off to Bible school and I didn't want to go there, I became a Christian, and it's a good place to be at a Bible school when you become a new Christian because everything you're doing throughout the day was reading the Bible, studying the Bible, studying doctrine, studying theology, and I loved it as a new Christian. I soaked it in. And at the school I went to, you had to do things like teach Sunday school, lead a worship service at a nursing home, uh, go door to door and do evangelism. And so I did all these things, learning all this, really hungry for Christianity, and I heard a sermon one Sunday by my pastor downtown Chicago, and he got up and he preached a sermon. I don't even know what it was on, but he said, you know what Christian, Christianity needs, the church needs? He says, we don't need Christians that dabble in a lot of things. We need Christians that do one thing and do it well. In other words, he's just talking about the health of the church. It'd be good for the church to have people that do one thing and do it well, whatever that one thing is. And I remember that sermon just resonating in my mind. I'm thinking, what's my one thing? And I 
didn't know what I was doing with my life at that point because I was a new Christian and all my dreams of being what I wanted to be. I thought, I don't even know if I should do that. But I started praying and I started giving myself to say, God, what's the one thing you want me to do? And as I went to teach Sunday school classes and I started leading youth groups, and I just was like, this seems like the one thing that if I worked at it, I could do this and do it well. So I'm going to try to do this well. And I said, if you ask me at that point even, are you going to be a pastor? I'm like, I don't want to be a pastor, but I need to find Christians that I can teach the Bible to, which someone should have knocked on my forehead at that point. He said, well, that's what pastors do, basically. But I, didn't, I still wasn't thinking that way. But I kept getting opportunities to do that. And uh, the more I had opportunities to teach the Bible, uh, the more I was asked to work with churches. And then it was like, would you be on staff here? I said, okay. And then I came on staff at a church and I thought I can work with college students and I can work with young people and it'll be great. And then a month into my time there, the pastor was diagnosed with terminal cancer and went into radiation chemotherapy and was basically out of it. And so I would go to his bedside and he'd say, okay, well, you're preaching this Sunday and you're going to run this board meeting and you're going to set up this program. And so I was in my mid-20s, still probably not thinking I'd ever be a pastor, but now all of a sudden I was kind of thrown into it. He died. They asked me to be the pastor. I became a pastor, but I never really wanted to. So, so my question is, there's a lot of Christians that believe that the COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast. How do you respond to that? It's not. <laughs> you want more than that? It's yes. really not. It's super duper not. Yeah, no, the mark of the beast is a uh, sign of loyalty to a world leader that will be this antichrist who will be doing false signs and wonders. It is an expression of loyalty to a one individual that Jesus talked about, that Daniel talked about, the Old Testament prophets talked about, book of Revelation talks about. Uh, it, it is clear what it is. This was said when they started issuing credit cards. This was said when they put a chip in the credit cards. This was said when, you know, you name it. Anything that is going to help you get through a door electronically that was said about it. Um, this, this is not the mark of the beast. Um, so stop saying that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 there's hyper-sensationalism about everything that people start to do that is technology-based or is identification-based or is, uh, in this case, mandated, uh, or it's not quite yet mandated, but certain professions. Um, that's when everyone gets uh, spooked. Listen, you want to deal with that as an issue? Deal with that as an issue, but don't now make it a theological issue regarding the Antichrist. When it's related to the Antichrist, you'll know it, right? And it won't be, you know, the Illuminati or some, you know, clandestine Gnostic group out there. It'll be clear. And uh, this is not clear. This is a mess, but it's not the Antichrist. Yeah, in the back. My daughter this week asked me what happens to children who pass away and don't have a chance to hear or respond to the gospel. How do I respond to her better than that's a great question Question for Pastor Mike? Yes. Where can I show her in the Bible that responds? Yeah, I wish we had a clear passage I could point you to. And a lot of people like to point to various passages and say, I think it's here. When David, for instance, grieves over the child, the child dies. And he said, you know, what can we do now? They're all surprised he washes his face and, and gets up and worships God. And they say, wow, what's the deal? And David says, well, I 
I can't uh, bring the baby back, right? He can't come to me, but I will go to him. And so you think, okay, well, that means if he's going to heaven, the baby must be in heaven. Uh, I'm not saying that that may not be true, but that's not what the passage is teaching. We're talking about death. He can't bring back the dead. Um, Here's the problem with the whole question. Romans chapter 5 talks about the fact that because we are related to Adam, we all are born with a problem that is imputed to us because of our identification with the human race. And because of our identification with the fallen human race and our ultimate parents, we are all guilty from the start. We are conceived in iniquity as it's put in the Old Testament. Um, so to say, well, how does that iniquity get taken care of? We say, well, you, you hear the gospel, you respond to the gospel, put your trust in Christ, and all that's reversed. And just as you know, sin came into the world through one man and was imputed to us, uh, now righteousness has come into the world and our salvation through one man, and that's imputed to us through faith in Christ. And that's the whole point of the book of Romans, including Romans chapter 5. Um, well, if I need that, how do we, that's, that establishes the question. How is that going to happen then for a child? And of course, it can't. And it's not just a child, it's someone who has so mentally impaired, they can't figure this out, or they have no sense of, of a, a moral conscience, right? Uh, and there are plenty of people that, because of this problem or that, um, they're, they're, they don't have that ability. Um, so what we need is something the Bible does not specifically say. In other words, well, then God just obviously must impute righteousness to them without their consent. And uh, while I can't point to a passage that says that, we look at the nature of God and we say, okay, if God says in Romans chapter 2 that even those who have a conscience, right, and, and don't have the teaching of the law, if God shows mercy and grace to these folks who respond rightly to the light they have, uh, wouldn't it follow, can't we extrapolate, that God is going to impute grace to those uh, that never had an opportunity or the ability to respond to their conscience, to creation, to scripture, to the gospel? And most of us would say, as students of the Bible, uh, yeah, I think that's an extrapolation you can safely make. So I'm of the opinion, and um, I just build that on the overall composite of the nature of God, that God is a God who imputes the righteousness of Christ to those who are incapable of faith. And if you want a theologian uh, with much more depth and articulation to say that to you, um, you can read Millard Erickson's book on uh, faith. I think it's called, uh, and that's why I brought my laptop up, because there's a lot of books that have been written through time. Um, let me give you two seconds just to be complete. How are you all this morning? Are you all good? I know it's about, and Pastor Mark's up here. Is it about hearing faith? How shall they then hear? How shall they hear? That's what I want to say. How shall they be saved? Okay, the destiny of those who do not hear of Jesus. Millard Erickson, the last chapter, deals with those incapable of faith. It's an old book written February uh, 1996, but a good book. I think it's in our bookstore. That'll go in depth, but that's the answer. The answer is I can't point to a verse that's going to say it, though people try to say, claim that. I look at those verses. I can't say that's an accurate interpretation of those verses, but I can say, based on the nature of God, I'm trusting that he will impute his... Um... And here's the deal. Let me say this. I do know this about Romans chapter 2. Even if we were to say, okay, God is not going to say that. I know there's some people even in our church that would say that. Um, here's what I would say. 
he is not going to impute judgment on actions that are done in ignorance. That's what he says in Romans chapter 2. So I know this, there would be no active punishment. Judgment is, is twofold. It's passive and active, right? We are away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. That's what it is to be separated, outer darkness. If you're not a Christian, you don't have the grace of God, you don't have access to God in the afterlife, you get excluded. That's passive judgment, and you don't want to, you don't want to not be invited to the party. So that's what, Then there's active judgment. Well, there is no active judgment for those that don't have conscious awareness of sin. So we know that that is impossible. So would there be exclusion with no compounding issues of volitional decisions to sin? And, and so... I'm going to say, even if you're of a hard line saying, well, I'm looking at Romans chapter 5, I see no verse anywhere, so I'm going to say, yeah, I'm I, sorry. Well, you can say that, but what's the experience going to be? That's why the Roman Catholic Church and others have come up with this concept of limbo, and it's not a biblical concept. We've made that up, but I am going to say, that's not my position. My position is I believe that God imputes Christ's righteousness to those who are incapable of faith. That's my answer. Millard's much more eloquent in the answer than I just was. Clearly, clearly. Yes. Um, a lot of young people, specifically in my circle, which I recognize I graduated from Bible school, so maybe my circle's more flush with this right now, but are deconstructing and not from, from church as a whole, but to like a new faith, whatever they want to call it. Um, these conversations, I don't know how to have them. There is no reasoning. There's no logic. There are people I know know the right answers, and they're intentionally walking away from them. How do we effectively engage in these conversations? Okay. Well, the concept of deconstruction can apply to many different areas. So what are you speaking of specifically? Faith, church, God. Okay, they want spirituality without religion. That's often how they put it. Is that what you're talking about? Kind of, yeah. Okay, kind of. Is there something more accurate, a better way to say it? Um, what are the kinds of things they're rejecting? Uh, purity culture, well, yeah, which okay. is coming all the way through to like, well, we can have sex before marriage, right, right, or yeah. God doesn't want this to happen, or Jesus was a socialist, all yeah, that kind of okay. stuff. Yeah, okay, well, and here's the thing, and that's an interesting, <laughs> no, that's an interesting development. Let me separate two things. Post-modernity, we call it, there was a m modern era, which came after World War II, where everyone was saying with innovation and technology, you know, like that tomorrow thing at Disneyland they used to have, like everything's going to be solved, that was modernity. Post-modernity was, there's no hope in that, we're, we're lost. Francis Schaeffer talked a lot about that. You're going to have this postmodern reality. You didn't call it that necessarily, but you, you have this, 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 which is generally characterized by relativism. Like, no one can tell us what to do. Your opinion, my opinion doesn't matter. And some theologians have rightly made the distinction that we've passed from a soft postmodernity, which is everyone is entitled to their own ideas. It's like Oprah, you can believe what you want. I'm going to believe what I want. It's fine. Every, all roads lead to heaven, whatever. You, your truth, my truth. Even those phrases were not known in the modern era. They were outliers. Now it's like everybody's got that. My truth, hey, speak your truth, right? Whatever. Um, your generation is shifting into what some call... Um, uh, uh, um, let's just call it what one theologian calls it, a hard postmodernity, which is I can still derive truth based on what I feel is right and what my peers think is right, but now I can militarize it and I can say, you're absolutely worthy of my angst and my hostility and I can enforce now my view on you. 
right? For instance, if, if you say women can't be pastors because you're quoting this Bible, or you're saying can't have sex before marriage and you're quoting this Bible, right? We've decided, we got here through a postmodern way of thinking, I'm going to feel my way through this. I don't feel that that's right. And if I were God, I wouldn't say that. Okay, now we got there. Now all of a sudden, in the old days, it was like, well, your way, my way, find a church you like. But now it's like, no, you can't have a church that says those things. Now it's been a militarized, hard-edged post-modernity, which says you are having to bow to me, right? You, there's, no e, there's no middle ground. There's no, speaking of limbo, there's no limbo. You, you're either with us or against us. And so your generation, unfortunately, uh, has got the pitchforks and, and the torches, and they want to burn down everything that doesn't agree with them. The problem is they got to those conclusions with an unmoored, we say, this, this, this detachment from objective reality. An objective reality is, as Francis Schaeffer rightly put it, it's that there is a God and he has revealed himself. And he's revealed himself in propositional truths that are black and white and objective. And as Schaefer liked to say, as he saw this post-modernity coming and growing, it's, it's true truth. We believe in true truth. And if you've ever read Nancy Piercy, she has helped to modernize or uh, uh, palatalize. She's made this much easier to digest, which is she took Francis Schaefer's upper story, lower story truths. Let me just put it this way. There's preferences that have become militarized in the modern era. And, and what Francis Schaeffer is saying, you need to understand the difference between preferences. I like Rocky Road ice cream. I don't, but let's just say chocolate. I'm very plain. I like vanilla ice cream. And that's my preference, right? That's not right to say vanilla ice cream is the best, right? And they would say, well, they took all these, these concepts and they've said, like, your religion, Christianity's best. No, Buddhism's best. No, some conglomerate of, of the two is best. Uh, those things now, uh, everything has been subjectively arrived at, but now I can attack you for not doing it. Matter of fact, I can exclude you. I can kill you. I can shout at you, depending on the, the form of the militarized postmodernity. So we've gone from a, so a soft postmodernity, as Owen Strand says, to a hard postmodernity, and we now have a uh, fight on our hands that's hard to battle with. Because I want to point to the fact, no, I believe there's a God. It makes sense. Uh, I believe that he's revealed himself because the Bible shows signs of his revelation and he's clearly revealed himself here. Now we got to do what he says. And, and like my generation said, no, I don't, I don't like that. It doesn't feel right to me, but whatever, live and let live, say la vie. Your generation says, uh, I don't think it's right and I should drive you out of society. And so we just need to know that we got to take one step back from the hard-edged post-modernity to the post-modernity that got us there. And, and Paul Copen, we had at our church training our our leaders. Um, he wrote a book, True for, you, True, for, True for Me, Not for You, or True for You, Not for Me. Um, that is where we live. He also wrote one, I think, called God Goes to Starbucks, which I even like even better. I, I Just the way he goes through that in talking about the relativism. Greg Kokel, a friend of ours, he's spoken here as well, uh, talks about uh, feet planted in midair. That's the name of his book. And all of those deal with the problem that we were dealing with 20 years ago and now has become a unquestioned foundation for what is truth. If I think you should have sex before you get married, then who are you to tell me I can't? And not only who are you to tell me I can't, who are you to say it? Right Now it's no longer you're impinging on my freedoms, it's you can't say it. And, and, and I think that's what we need to be ready for. And a lot of things in society have put us in that place. So if we're not ready to fight, number one, for the fact that you can't derive your own truth, truth by your feelings. You have to derive your truth by something objective. 
This is called foundationalism. It has, it has to be, truth is a correspondence to reality. And that's not where my generation was. They were like, no, it's whatever I feel. And now your generation is, yeah, it's whatever we feel. And if we feel it, you guys should be punished for it. So how do we deal with it? I don't know. I, there's a quick sketch of the problem. Um, I think you go back, as the scripture says, you go back to God's testimony, God's law, line by line. What does he say? And at the end of time, every relativist, every postmodernist is going to be judged by the God who opens the books and says, I revealed to you something in scripture. And you say, well, they just believe something else. The Bible says that scripture comports with their conscience. And in the end, everyone suppresses the truth in their unrighteousness. So we know that when we speak the truth of God's word to people, whether it's about male headship in the church, whether it's about sex outside of marriage, we're speaking the truth that their conscience was initially wired to comport with. And that, I think, um, sometimes we always have an advantage in our evangelism as Christians because we're speaking a book that is written by the same spirit that designed their conscience. Now, they may have worn their conscience out, or as Paul talked about, they may have seared their conscience or, or, or you know, made their conscience very uh, callous, as he puts it, but um, keep speaking the truth and keep going back to the scripture because one day that book will judge every postmodern person. That seemed a little too deep. Let's go simpler. Uh, where are we? Right here. Okay. On August the 4th in our daily Bible reading in Romans 5, I got hung up on verse 13 and 14, and it says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigneth from Adam to Moses. Now my question here, does this mean that those who died before Moses gave the law, they have no part in heaven and hell? And then what about Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They were counted righteous. Right. And I, if you can't, and here's from their daily Bible reading, we read a a chapter in Romans, we read a couple in Old Testament, we keep moving, in this case we're in Psalms. So it, you were, what, two, three, four, five, three or four days ago you were reading Romans 2. But Paul was expecting this book to be read in one sitting. And as it was read to the church, if you read that, you couldn't read it divorced from chapter 2, which reminds us that even if you don't have the law, right, because of God's testimony in creation, chapter 1, and conscience, chapter 2, uh, these people without the law are a law unto themselves. Now, they may not know certain things, like uh, I know it, um, as Paul goes on to say in chapter 7, uh, coveting, right? If I didn't have that clarity about coveting, I wouldn't know that coveting was wrong in the act of coveting. I might see the bad effects of it down the road, but I wouldn't know it, but God said it, so now I see it, and now I realize, oh man, I'm condemned. So now all of a sudden it made me a transgressor because I understood coveting. Uh, but sticking needles in babies' eyes, that's clearly sin in every culture all the time, right? Uh, taking someone else's stuff that they hunted the boar, and I go into their hut, and I steal it, and I take it and cook it and, and feed it to my family. Everyone knows that's wrong. So the law, in a simplistic form, is always something that God has revealed in the conscience, so much so that we can go all the way back before there was the law of Moses. And I think if you study Old Testament with us, you'll find that Job is in a period before the giving of the law, and you've got him described as a righteous man who does righteous things, who God is pleased with. So again, when you have guys, you think about people, uh, 
with multiple wives in the Old Testament. How can God say he's righteous, right, with all these multiple wives? Now, kings weren't supposed to multiply wives, and Solomon did that. But to have Abraham, who was the father of faith, he's got more than one wife, and he's got two you know, other servants, and he's got four women, he's having children. Well, what's going on here? Um, well, because we did not have the clarity of, of in this case, it became super clear in the New Testament, that you are to be the husband of one wife, right? Plural marriage was gone. It's like marrying your sister. Of course, when Adam lives for a thousand years, has all these kids, and people are having marriages with their sisters and their cousins, they had all kinds of children. Think about it. Even if you lived to be 300 and you were healthy before the flood, you have all kinds of kids. You're marrying your close relatives. Then the law comes along and says, in Moses' day, right, in 1440s, you can't marry your close relative. Well, of course, there are reasons God does that, but the point is that clarity of that law made it wrong. And so you could be righteous and not keep the details of the law, and God can say you're keeping the law because your conscience and creation and whatever revelation he's given through the prophets is a law to yourself. Um, but with increasing clarity, right, there are increasing rules. If a priest did not put on the breastplate to go into the service of the, of the temple, he would be violating the law. Well, people worship like Job at an altar. He wasn't even a priest, and he was considered righteous. Why? Because the law of that particular command was not there. So you've got to read chapter 5 in Romans about, well, no law, no sin, in, in a sense in which we're talking about the details of the law. And the distinction was made in chapter 2. You Jews think that you're righteous just because you have the law. Right now, you got more things that God expects you to obey. And before that law, right, there was a lot less for you to obey because conscience and creation and whatever prophetic word there might have been through the spoken prophets, that's what you had to keep and whatever that was. So it's not an absolute statement. And we know that because of chapter one and chapter two, which don't, chapter two in particular, because it talks about living before the coming of the specific laws. And then in chapter seven again, so I would say this, if you want to help with chapter five, read chapter two of Romans and read chapter seven of Romans and then read chapter five again. And you'll know these cannot be absolute statements in the sense that we're not talking about any sin. Of course, you can be a sinner before the coming of the law of Moses. And of course, you can be righteous. Like 2000 BC, there's a man named Melchizedek that God calls righteous. He's a priest. Well, wait a minute. We don't have Levi yet, right? We don't have the priesthood established yet. He's called a king of righteousness. You're not supposed to have a king and a priest in one office in Israel. How can that be? Because God counts him as, as a righteous person. Why? Because there was no law about those things at that point. But it doesn't mean there's no law absolutely in any sense, right? Coming and taking your stuff, everyone knows that's wrong. Healing your children, although our culture doesn't seem to think that's wrong. But um, you can see throughout that wasn't funny. I get why you didn't laugh at that, but that is a sad reality of our culture. It's culture of death, as others have called it. So, anyway, again, a little too verbose this morning, but that, that's, that's my best answer in the time I have. Yes? Thank you. Um, I have a dear friend, a Christian friend, um, whose son is currently transitioning from male to female. He's not, but okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> he's going through that process. He's trying. He's trying. Yes. And um, his, their church um, has completely rejected them, and she's obviously feeling very isolated and alone. Yeah. Um, how do we as Christians um, deal with that issue? Right. We tell them this is wrong. It's a perversion. It has been from the beginning. And it needs to be addressed as sin. But we're living in a culture where it says this isn't sinful. 
right? You want to be a, a dude and lift weights in the Olympics as a chick, as a girl, right? No problem. We respect whatever you think you are. This is the insanity of our culture. So we're saying as rational Christians, God has been very clear about he created male and female. The Lord of the universe repeated it. He said in Matthew 19, he's created them male and female. There's no confusion on this. There's no confusion in nature. There's no confusion in our bodies. There's no confusion. But today we love to be perverse and rebellious against God's law. And that's what's happening in that family. And it's a sad thing when you have a kid that's being rebellious against the law of God. So how would you um, respond to a mom whose kid has now decided he's going to be a smash and grab jewelry thief and he's hitting all the jewelry stores throughout Southern California? Well, you'd be sympathetic and compassionate because you think what a horrible thing that is, but you would never, ever affirm what the son is doing. And so we can't. And that's the problem. A lot of people say, if you love me, you'll affirm what I want, which goes back to our question here. In a culture that says, no one can tell me I'm wrong. As a matter of fact, anyone who tells me I'm wrong about stuff I don't want you to tell me I'm wrong about, then we're going to say you're wrong and we're going to attack you. Uh, we understand we're at a deficit in the cultural temperature that we live in. But the problem is, they're, they're, we're playing games, right, with this whole thing. I mean, your desires may be perverse. doesn't make them right. And we need to say it's wrong. And we need to say we'd sure like to help you help your son do what's right. Um, but, yeah, we can't approve it. I don't know if you can hear me. My yeah. friend um, it thinks that there's a mental health component to this. Like, so is there? And I don't it's, know. Does that a, make a difference? Well, again, these are words we've done, as C.S. Lewis talked about, we're adding a lot of therapeutic language to sin and then making us feel okay with that. I don't care what you call it, right? A perverse desire is a perverse desire, and it's a perverse desire for a man to say, I want to be a woman. That's perverted, and I say that in the sense it carries a lot of moral weight, but that's just a, a natural thing to say. I mean, it is an unnatural desire, to put it in terms of Romans chapter 1. So, um, there might be a lot of reasons for that. There might be a lot of things that explain that, but it never excuses that. If my kid were a smash and grab robber of jewelry stores, you might say, well, let's just figure out how he was raised. And did he not get enough candy? Or I don't know, whatever you're, you're trying to figure out. Fine, you're right. But when, as Lewis said, you have lab coats telling us what can be considered sin and what can't, we've lost, we lost it. And I love what in an article he wrote in God in the Dock, he talks about the fact that when we lose the concept of a jury trial, where peers can really sit there and say, we as normal people say that's wrong, right? There should be enough revelatory light left, and that he was writing back in the 60s, um, to say, 50s and 60s, um, we have to defer to psychologists and mental health experts, and oh, you tell us if they're, if they're wrong or not. If, if an ox bored your child, it was to be killed right? I mean, we didn't say, well, let's just figure, the poor ox didn't know what he was doing, right? You don't, there is judgment for these things. And in the grace of God, there can be deliverance, there can be forgiveness. May not mean that those desires go away because there's something messed up, you might say, and you might give it a clinical definition. But we're still going to say, we want that to stop. Why? Romans chapter 2, because you're storing up wrath for yourself for the day of God's judgment. Do you care about that? I would care about that. Why do I want my neighbors to be upstanding citizens and pay their taxes? Why do I want them to be faithful in their marriages? Why do I want them to be not killing people in their backyard? Right? What if they don't affect me? I don't care. No, I do care. I care for you if I love you because I don't want you to store up more wrath for the coming day of judgment. And same thing with you 
violating the nature of God and the nature of man by saying, we're going to just pretend gender doesn't matter. Your gender matters to God, and God has assigned that gender. If you don't like it, you may not like a lot of things about the way you were made, but too bad. I don't like when I was born. I would have rather been born in the 1700s. It doesn't matter. You're here. God chose for you to be here. So you're going to have to live with that, right? And, and, and for some people with their desires, if my desires, if I'm going to be authentic, you can have your authentic feelings and still be wrong, right? What we want to say is you're going to have to, in some ways, get used to disappointment because there's a lot of desires you have and I have that we can't act on. Why? Because we know they're wrong. Why? Because it'll, for us as Christians, it'll be an act of discipline that God brings in our lives. So we can't capitulate in our culture to saying things that the world wants us to say are right or right if God is clear in Scripture about it. And he's so clear in Scripture about this. Male and female, you're stuck with the gender you are, make the best of it. Well, I don't like the other gender. Great, well, then you're going to be single. That's fantastic. And I'm going to struggle with desires. Hey, welcome to humanity. We're all struggling with desires that are wrong. I mean, and that sounds dismissive. And of course, I started with, I want to be compassionate. I got a friend that says, my kid's a smash and grab thief. Oh, man, that must be hard. That's tough. Let's pray about it. How can we get him help? The culture now says you can't get him help. Reparative therapy is wrong, right? Okay, I don't care what the world says because they're going to hell. They're going to stand before God and be cast into the eternal fire, the Bible says. So what I care about is the God who made us. What does he think about someone transitioning or attempting or playing around at transitioning? That's what I care about. That's what you should care about. And that's the problem with authority. In a day, and this gets back to the first question about college campuses and where we're living today, when we don't understand that authority has jurisdiction, right, we've lost it. And that's where our culture is right now. As it says in the book of Judges twice, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, right? Why? Because there was no king in Israel. There was no righteous king. There was no one to tell us this is right. And so they said, well, I'm going to be a law unto myself. And that's a bad place to be. Read the book of Judges if you want to see how bad it can get in our culture when people do whatever they want to do. And of course, I don't mean to be a negative, but I was really negative right there about all of that. But you already, you watch the news. You know how bad it is, right? And I'm sorry. People struggling with those things. Um, can you clarify the um, timeline before creation? I was reading a book with my son who was reading a book on you know the universe and other rock formations, and they were giving you know, millions of years, and I've told him in the past, well, you know, it's not millions of years, and then so many other readings, I'm getting confused because um, a lot of the secular stuff is getting put into the Christian stuff where, hey, God used the Big Bang Theory to create the world. And so, again, not that I'm getting confused, I'm just wanting clarity. Okay. Well, I don't think you meant what you said, which told me about time before creation, because there was no time before creation, right? As a, as a reality, time, right? Matter, time, energy. So, but here's, here's what we were saying, right? We reject the secular view, the naturalistic view, right? That we are the product of some thoughtless, chaotic singularity that, for lack of a better term, exploded and billions of years later we're here. And you know, 4.7 billion years ago, something called life showed up, and then it turned into a lizard and a hamster and a rat and, and a monkey and then a man. We're saying, no, that is not right. It, it, it doesn't comport with God's revelation. Well, what about the geologists and the paleontologists that say different? Geologists and paleontologists depend a lot on each other, but their, their canon, their rule, their measuring stick is 
what they call primarily, and it's their, it's their key, radi radiometric dating, right? That, that parent isotopes decay into daughter isotopes. And they say, okay, we know the rate of some of the, the parent-daughter decays, and we can time those. And since we know how long it takes for a parent isotope to decay into a daughter isotope, all we have to do now is find a rock and say, what are the, what are the, 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 uh, the ratios? And then I'll know, I'll just go back in time and assume that that rate of decay has never changed and that it started at 100 parent and zero daughter. And I can look at how much daughter, how much parent. I can say, that's how old the rock is. And, and then the paleontologist, when he finds something, right, in, in, in a rock formation, they say, oh, well, okay, I know this dinosaur bone because uh, it matches my storyline. It must go to this time period because of the rock that the geologist said is based on radiometric dating is this old. And so now all of a sudden you're like, wow, how does the whole creation story fit in, which is a much shorter time period of, of you know, thousands and thousands of years, but not millions or billions of years. How does that work? I would say this. If, if you don't respect the fact that Christ comes on the scene and has this rash of creative miracles, creating something out of nothing with the word of his own power, that then on the other side, as soon as he does it, has the actual physical, chemical, scientific appearance of age and history that it never had, right? Then you don't understand what the Bible is teaching from the very beginning, that God speaks out of nothing things into reality. When Jesus turns water into wine, wine is one of the most complex, right, chemistry, chemical thing that you can make, right? With peptins and proteins and enzymes and all the acidic balances and all those things have to be just right for this wine to be at that wedding. Wow, this is the best wine we've had all night. Well, how did you get all that? Well, Jesus took these stone jars and said, voila, and they were there. How long did it take? Well, how long does it take to get all those enzymes and the balance and the fermentation and everything to be just what it should be and the proteins? And well, it takes a long time. Right? And it takes a while to make some good wine. Well, that he did in a, in a word. Okay. Now, no one seems to be stumbling over that even in the modern church. Oh, yeah, Jesus did that. Or raised Lazarus from the dead after four days. Um, I've done the unpleasant work of reading books about um, what happens to the body instantaneously upon death and what happens in terms of the chain of, of putrefaction from death into four-day period. I mean, I can go further, but the reality of all that is just amazing. What's the miracle that must take place for Jesus to say, Lazarus, come forth, when Mary and Martha are saying, he stinks, right? He's rotting in a grave. Right? This is an amazing thing of God taking something that did not exist in that biological unit, speaking with the word of his power into reality, things that weren't there, that had an appearance in history of age never had. The Bible says God created the universe out of nothing. God created order to it. He then put a, a man and a woman in a garden and made them, right? Started with a man, made the woman, all of that. They had belly buttons. They never had an umbilical cord attached to, right? They had fingernails and never time to grow. They had hair, whatever length it was, never had any time to grow that. They're sitting there around trees with rings in them that they never developed, with rocks with parent and daughter isotopes that they never decayed into. That's everything about creation is exactly the way it is about every creative miracle that's done in the Bible. And granted, there's less than 90 of them in the Bible, but every one of those is, a, is an act of God's creative power. Second, Timothy, Second Peter chapter 3 says, just with that word of, of power that not only created the world, but sustains the world. You can talk to Heisenberg, and Heisenberg's principally uncertainty, he's dead now, about how 
the sustaining power of God, as it says in that passage, he upholds it, Colossians does, it says, by the word of his power. Um, Acts 17, it's, it's, he gives every man life and breath and everything else. He is sustain- In him we live and move and have our being. So God is not only creating things out of nothing, he's sustaining things actively. We're not deists. We don't believe he made a watch and wound it up and walked away. And then he will, according to 2 Peter 3, with the same word that he destroyed the world with in the flood, he will then, as he's reserved it for fire, he'll destroy it again. And it'll destroy it instantaneously. So God is a God who creates something out of nothing. And all of us have the problem of something being here rather than nothing. And that's why the silliness of reading about the Big Bang Theory should, should give you trouble. Here's how they describe the Big Bang. Okay, Here's a quote from some of the scientists. You have to have a series of physical laws right, that do not now exist. From that moment of singularity, right, and of course they're talking about seconds and microseconds, nanoseconds, and within three minutes we have this completely different set of physical laws. Now we had a set of physical laws that created the physical laws, but we don't have those physical laws anymore, and so we don't even know how that happened. But don't ask us about that because we're here, right? And, and all I'm telling you is um, it, it's absurdity. There's an old book, it's not a popular book, called, I think it's called Evolving Evolution, which was an interesting book for me to read to think through the process of how even in the discussion of the Big Bang, there has to be such faith in a set of rules that none of us can replicate, see. Why? Because we're all dealing with the same problem. How do we get something when there was nothing? Jesus comes on the scene, does it over and over and over again. Here's something where there was nothing. I'm creating a muscle in the calf of a paralytic that did not exist, completely atrophied. And I'm going to do it with nutrients and blood vessels in it that weren't there a minute ago. All of that, proteins, right? Enzymes, everything in place. That's a God who creates something out of nothing. So I'm going to believe that Christ turned water into wine. I'm also going to believe that that Christ, as according to John 1, everything that was created was created by him. Created by the word of his power, upheld by the word of his power. You are a remarkable miracle sitting here as a conscious, conscious breathing person. Even the four horsemen of the modern atheists, they struggle with life itself. What is life? What is consciousness? Right? One of them spent his dissertation just dealing with that. How are we conscious? What is that? What's the difference between a conscious body, right? And, and then the body five minutes later after that body dies, and it's not a conscious body. We're naturalists. We've got a problem with that. And we can theorize about that. Most people don't like to think about that. But the reality of you sitting here is a problem in and of itself that demands a miracle. And you can describe that miracle on Wikipedia or your science textbooks to say somehow it just popped into being through a set of laws that none of us know anything about. Or you can say, yeah, God is a God who calls things into existence when there was nothing there before. And it all has, after he does it, an appearance, scientific, physical appearance of a history that it never had. And and that's what I believe, that's what the Bible teaches, and I think it's rational and reasonable, and a lot of smart people would affirm the same. And um, so, yeah, the world has an appearance of age that it never had, including the rocks, and that's why the geologists say it, and the paleontologists depend on the geologists to date a lot of their, their fossils and bones, and if you want a book on that, just the fossil record, Martin Lubinow wrote a book called Bones of Contention. It's the second edition out now with more things that they discover that he is interacting with, but that might be a good book uh, to dig into that with your kids. Bones of Contention. Yeah, sorry. that Again, way too long-winded this morning. Yes, right here. Yeah, my question is, uh, when Jesus is on the cross suffering, taking the penalty for our sin, is that just a physical suffering or is there an internal spiritual component? 
And if there's an internal spiritual component, how does that affect the Trinity? Does God the Father turn his back on God the Son during a brief time on the cross? Uh, is that reconciled before death? Um, what's, the, what's the extent of that penalty that Jesus is taking? Again, is it just physical? Uh, Tom Schreiner answered that question at the, the Matthew uh, series by saying, no, it's just physical. I, I have trouble accepting that. Well, the reason people have trouble accepting that is because of the quotation of Psalm 22 in Jesus on the cross, which I don't think is just a reference to the first verse. He is trying to get us to think of the whole passage, and who knows how much of the passage he might have quoted, although probably just the first verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, and so in that, people read a lot of this Trinitarian struggle between the Father and the Son that Schreiner, a very astute theologian, is trying to protect the Trinitarian relationship. And I am going to say, and I like the way Piper puts it, it, the Son absorbed the sin of humanity. Was it at what, when you say spiritually, um, if, if I were to cut your leg off after church, uh, you'd have a spiritual problem and a physical problem right? That would be a really, you'd mess your day up and your brain up and your mind up and your heart up and whatever you were thinking about that made it a pleasant day. It'd be a very unpleasant day because I cut your leg off and all your stuff would be dangling out the end of the stump that I cut off. Um, that, sorry. Um, and I didn't grow up watching any horror movies either. I, I didn't. Um, so I am going to say, and, and this is how theologians talk about human beings being a psychosomatic whole. We have and I am a, I, I'm a dichotomist. I believe we are, are. God made us out of the dust of the earth. He breathed into us the breath of life. So I believe we're two components. And I think the real us ultimately is who we are, our software, our spirit. We're encased, in, as I wrote in my book on the, on the afterlife, we're enmeshed in that body. Okay. Because of that enmeshing, that psychosomatic whole, as some theologians call it, um, you cannot divorce the physical suffering from a personal suffering that goes beyond just, ouch, I hurt, right? I, I think there was a suffering that you would say, just like anyone who suffers physically, you're affected by that. I mean, I know people right now on their sickbed that they're just, their whole life is, is affected by that. Um, but to say the father cut his relationship with his son on the cross Right? I just think that's too simplistic of a way to put it. And I don't think that's what's happening. He is, as Piper said, he's absorbing the penalty of sin. And, and he was found in the appearance of sinful man. And then 2 Corinthians 5, right, he, 21, he right, became sin for us. Well, again, what does that mean? He's the target of God's justice on the cross. Was it restored before it was over? Well, I, I'm thinking, I don't think there was a detachment of father and son. But of course, when he says, into your hands I commend my spirit, right? He, he's in fellowship with the Father. He says the guy on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. There's no divorcing of father and son. Is there an effect to the depth of who he is as a person? Yes. And God is a lot more, I'm going to preach all week to the high schoolers about being made in the image of God. There's a lot more similarity, even though he's distantly and infinitely separate and transcendent and, 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 and different than us, other than us. There's more identity than we'd like to think. And I think when God takes on human form and suffers physically and becomes the absorption of God's justice, yes, there's more to it than, ouch, my, my head hurts because those thorns are in them. Um, but what Dr. Schreiner is trying 
to maintain, and I would agree. We don't want to say, hey, there was a break between the Father and the Son. Um, I think there can be no break between relationships um, between a mother and a child, but when a mother goes through labor to have that child, right, there is a, a kind of labor and pain that is, is unspeakable, and yet relationship is intact. I don't know. You're causing me great pain, but I'm still your mother, which happens beyond labor. But uh, I just think there's a relationship that we can say is sustained, even though there's great personal pain that goes beyond physical pain. Yeah. And, we have, and the reason this is a hard question is because there are borders we have to maintain. And I just think quoting Psalm 22 is not enough to go, oh, see there, the father then just said, I'm done with you, son, for 30 minutes or three hours. That's a hard question you've asked me there. And you knew it was, too, when you asked it. Yes. Jerry. Hi. Um, Hi. What would you, how would you explain in a simple way the Trinity? I know it's a complex thing, <laughs> but, but to... to uh, kids, you know, right. going, yeah. and and um, I, I ran into a Muslim who th- was challenging Christianity as not being a right. uh, only one God. Right. So, how would you give a, a simple explanation to that complex idea of Trinity? Yeah, um, I, I would say this: that every time you try to explain the Trinity in a simple way, you are bound to fall into error. Um, so I don't know that I want to try and explain it in a simple way. I can state it in a simple way. Right? There is one God right, who is co-equal right, in, in three persons. Right? Um, there's, there's no... I mean, I can tell that to my kids from the time that they're infants. Right? There's one God. We're a monotheistic faith, but he exists eternally as a triune fellowship. And the distinctions in the words that we use, and these guys have taken the class, they can go on and on about it, uh, that Dr. Schreiner taught, or Bruce Ware taught. Was it Bruce Ware? You'd ask Schreiner, but didn't Bruce teach our uh, Trinity class? Um, you are, um, you're going to have to make a distinction between essence and person. And, and that, that has no equivalent. It's not ice and water and vapor. It's not, as someone tried to explain to me last night, oh, it's like the time, time in the future, time in the present, time in the past. You know, there's all kinds of errors you fall into that the church is trying to avoid for 2,000 years when you illustrate it in anything other than God himself. So I have no easy way to explain it other than just to repeat the simple distinction that there is a distinction between Islam and Judaism and Christianity, even though they're called the three mono, great monotheistic faiths, right? Um, the distinction is that we believe that God is a triune God. And even that is a contradictory phrase, right? Tri is three, yun is one, uni, uni. So I get that. But that, that's a brain twister. And I would say to the Muslim, talk to me a little bit about your God because he's eternal, right? And all I'd have to do is dig a little deeper with thinking about that 10 trillion years ago, when your God was around, how long had he been there at that point? Right? Even that, I can talk about time itself. And again, it's easy to say, well, he exists outside of time. Well, that's an easy thing to say. It's a hard thing for you to really explain to a child. There's no easy explanation for the eternality of God. There's no easy explanation for the triunity of God. 
There's no easy explanation for the sovereignty of God and yet creating culpable, responsible human beings who act as agents in the world. These are hard things. And um, so I don't think there's any easy explanation. There's no easy explanation for light being a, a particle and a wave, right? There's no easy explanations for these things. No easy explanation for them when you explain relativity, right? Uh, so I just think some of these things defy an easy explanation. And if you want a funny expression of this, which I don't obviously agree with the Lutherans on, on, on everything, a lot of things, but uh, the Lutheran satire uh, YouTube channel has a fun little cartoon of the Trinity. So if you just type Lutheran satire Trinity on your YouTube app, uh, watch it after church, not right now, but uh, you'll get a funny little... Um, well-done satire about the problems with us trying to illustrate the Trinity. It's a problem. You can thank me later for that laugh and lead. Yes, Pastor Kellen. He's going to come on this side. Yes. <laughs> Pastor Mike, uh, my question is why, and please explain the dynamics. I'm confused or I'm challenged by the last three chapters of Judges. And primarily where it starts with the, uh, uh, the crime against this person and his concubine. Mm, and right. then all of Israel together as one person comes against Benjamin. And uh, they inquire of God. And then they immediately lose about 40,000 people. They inquire again. They come back. And so uh, Benjamin is, is trounced. And then in 21, they say they weep bitterly. And they say, oh, Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel, Benjamin. And then they go through this whole process of getting them women. I have an extreme amount of difficulty to understand why. And what is the lesson I am to learn and to take away from this? Yeah, and, and that, that last part is a harder problem. Because much of the book of Judges in this 400-year period of a cycle of defeats, it's not just a cycle, but a cyclical downward spiral into the kind of depravity that the book ends with, cutting up concubines and sending it to the 12 tribes. This is, um, this is a horrific period in the life of Israel. So I don't, what we're going to learn from it, I think, is what's repeated twice and ends the book with, there was no king in Israel, therefore everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We need to see the chaos of untethering ourselves from the absolute and objective truths of God and adhering to his revelation, which we started our time with. So I think that's the general lesson. This particular lesson, it's a lot like when David uh, is incited by Satan to, to take a census. It can be hard for us to kind of think through the details of that. And I guess the best I would do with all that happened at Shiloh and the wives that were gained and the chaos that all took place is direct you to a good commentary because those chapters have several sequences to it. And I would recommend to the brief um, explanation of this weird section, uh, I think is helpful and good in the Bible knowledge commentary. The Old Testament, there's one volume, it's in our bookstore, it's available online electronically, Bible knowledge commentary. Read those explanations to try and piece those things together because it is a bit of a head scratcher. A lot of things, by the way, in, in Judges, as it spirals into chaos, is, is Jephthah's vow, right? Like, what, you, what is that about? Did he kill his daughter? Um, and if he did, it seems that that, what, what, why would you ever say, what is that about, right? Cutting up the concubine, um, the wives at Shiloh, all of that. So I'm going to say 
That's the first commentary I would have you get. And another one I think we do carry in our bookstore, um, Frank Grablin uh, has a 12-volume set. I think it's 12 volumes. But on that one on Judges, and I think he adds um, a couple other books with that in that volume. Uh, but um, Bible, no, it's called the uh, Exp um, Expositor's Bible Commentary. Is that what it's called? Come on, Mike, the bar is. Take a little commercial right now. Hold on. Expositor's Bible Commentary. I, why do I doubt that I had that right? <laughs> yeah. Um, there's an abridged version, but I would get the one that has the judge's volume, and it probably is in our bookstore. I think we sell those as individual volumes, um, and it may be more than 12 volumes, but the one on judges will help you. And I know there's in, in, individual standalones. I can't think of any good ones on judges off the top of my head, but um, I would start with those two to try and piece together some of those details. And that's where commentaries are helpful. These men, particularly who study ancient Near Eastern history, um, there's a lot of things that are going on even in surrounding areas and in the Canaanite backgrounds that will help you say, okay, this, there's an insight I wouldn't have gotten just by reading my Bible 15 times in this passage. That's not a lot of satisfaction. But your second question was harder, and yet there is an answer, I think. We can't get like Israel was, particularly as the people of God in the church. Yeah, let's do one more, or at least one more. Pastor Mike, uh, I had a question about uh, rapture. Um, some of the churches reject uh, rapture being pre-tribulation, um, and uh, they also point to the fact that there is uh, no mention of it within the book of Revelation. Um, and uh, they claim uh, whatever verses there are uh, to be things that are post-tribulation, uh, uh, at the very end, that's when we will meet up with Christ. Uh, how do we respond to such people? Right. Uh, well, I, number one, I like the way you frame the question because a lot of people say that some people don't believe in the rapture, Christians. Um, you got to believe in the rapture because it's taught in the Bible. The question is, when is it? And you, So I'm just com com commending you for the way you worded the question because that's the right way to word the question. Um, there's this period of time, which I believe is the Old Testament prophecy of the time of Jacob's trouble, the 70th week of Daniel, um, the period of time described from Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter 19, that this is a period where God is going to take his people Israel, draw them to the Messiah, uh, have them saved, a lot of people being saved, but his wrath is going to be poured out on the earth. That period of time, you say, well, the rapture's not mentioned in there. Well, a lot of people that do understand the rapture as being pre-tribulational would say, well, number one, there's no mention of the church in that period of time. The word is not used. A lot of saints, a lot of people come into Christ starting with 144,000 Jewish missionaries at the beginning of that section, but um, they would look at even when John is told to come up, right, to be caught up in, in, in the beginning of the book, and he sees that scene in Revelation chapter 4. So all I'm saying is um, it may be an argument from silence, but the absence of the church as it's described, and John loves to talk about it, right? I mean, the whole New Testament dealing with the church, the ecclesia in Greek, the, the body of this one new man, Jew and Gentile, in this one new organization, not described there. It's all now Jewish. It's all about the temple. It's all about the two prophets. It's all about the 144,000 from all 12 tribes of Israel. It, we seem to be going back to the Old Testament um, promises to Israel, which I believe, and that's why I believe that this time was for Jacob, Israel. The time is for 
the 12 tribes. The time is for a reassembled Israel in their land. So I'm a pre-tribulationalist. The post-tribulationalists say, it's all going to happen at the end. We're going to get caught up, and then we're going to come right back down. And you'll be able to feel it in your stomach. You'll go, whoop, and then you're down. And I'm going to say, no, I think we're going to go up. I think we're going to enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then we're going to come back. Um, I, I think the way to help people think through this, and of course, you just got to choose a church that believes, I mean, you don't have to, it's a secondary issue, but um, our, all of our pastors agree in a pre-tribulational rapture, which means that we believe that um, there's a distinction, even in the Gospels, as Jesus is talking about this, Matthew 24 and elsewhere, where there's a distinction between the um, coming of Christ to get his church and meet the church in the air, and the coming of Christ, as it says in Zechariah 14, where his feet come and touch the Mount of Olives. When he comes back with the saints, not for the saints, right? He comes back at the Battle of Armageddon to make this final judgment before this kingdom period begins. Uh, we just see a distinction there. And there are so many things. If, and I remember in school, um, master's work I was doing, and I was challenged to write something on everything in the, in the New Testament that described the coming of Christ as a surprise Right? imminent return, and all the ones that talked about it like you should know when it's going to happen, right? You can time it. If you start doing that, I think you'll find you can put these things in two categories, and I was thankful for Dr. Robert Sosi who made me do that project. It was like, okay, yeah, there is a distinction. There's a distinction between the comings of the Lord. Christ is going to come, I believe, for his church. Christ is going to then come in judgment on the world and in salvation for Israel, and then Christ is going to come to take Israel and establish a kingdom at the end. He's going to come with his saints. There's a lot of comings in that period of time. The day of the Lord is not a 24-hour period. So um, that's my view. There's um, books I often recommend on that. Uh, Dr. Mayhew, a friend of our church, been here to preach, wrote a book on the rapture. Uh, I, think, um, I think Ed Heinsohn wrote a book or some, uh, maybe it was someone else, uh, our friend from uh, Oklahoma teaches at Dallas Seminary. Um, can you still believe in the rapture, I think it's called? Um, th that, that's, that'd be a good start. Gathering Before the Storm is Dr. Mayhew's book. The Gathering Before the Storm, you should read that. Uh, and I think that certainly makes a great case for a pre-tribulational rapture. Um, the other book I'm thinking of is the guy who wrote that. Mark Hitchcock might have written the book called um, Can You Still Believe in the Rapture? It's either Ed Edson or Mark Hitchcock. But that one would be worth looking at too. So that's the argumentation. But I think there's more evidence there than the average person is willing to see. And plus, a lot of people say, well, this is a Johnny-come-lately, Plymouth Brethren thing. This Darby guy came up with it. I, I think that's absurd. Um, he popularized it, systematized it. I get all that. Um, but it's like saying there was no clarity on the deity of Christ until, you know, the Council of Nicaea. I just don't know. It's not the case. It's all there. It's just... Um, maybe not grown in the popularity. And even our own Dr. Goodrich, who works at CBI, I think he, I don't know if he wrote the chapter on it, but they came out with a book on, uh, I think one of the chapters in it, I don't know if he's here right now, on the pre-tribulational rapture. Um, one of the chapters in the book on what we believe, I think it's called. Anyway, look up John Goodrich and you can find that book. First of all, Pastor Mike, thank you for doing this. Of course. My question is this. In Tozer's book, he starts out with the statement, what you think of God is the most important thing about you. And also, I've been reading J.I. Packer's Knowing God. 
And if you remember, he starts out with the illustration of a student who's been rebuffed in some way and says, well, they don't know God. They know of him. I know God. What I'm asking is, if you have a library in your head of theology, doctrine, apologetics, and such as that, those are facts about God. How do you transition from that to that deep personal knowledge? Not of God, but knowing God at that personal level. Yeah. Well, when Jesus confronted the Pharisees about their mastery of Bible data, he said, you don't understand those scriptures bear witness of me, right? but you refuse to come to me. And I think even the, the verb, you refuse to come to me, there is a moral battle within all of us to maintain my autonomy, my liberty, my master of my own life, and knowing about you can keep you at arm's distance. You don't have to uh, submit to someone that you know about. But there has to be this concession and this engagement with a person that is not just a friend, right? He is the Lord and creator and the sovereign authority over my life. So if that's the case, knowing him is this breaking down the refusal. Now, I know Christ was talking specifically about the Messiah, fulfillment of the Messiah, but it's the same about God. They can know a lot about God in the Old Testament, uh, times like the Babylonian captivity before they went into captivity in, in the 5th century BC, 6th century, and have them say, we got all of our information right, but we're not willing to submit. Better yet, let's go to the post-exilic period, right? You've got uh, Malachi saying, you guys are doing all the stuff, but you're refusing to do it right because you don't honor me. I think knowing God, of course, this is assuming the fact that we're repenting of our sins, putting our trust in Christ, we're justified before God, we're, we're engaging in a relationship, which means we're learning about you in this book so we can relate to you. And to relate to you is to submit to you, to be devoted to you, to love you, to, to care about your cares and your priorities. And of course, that's all expressed through our devotion in prayer. It's all reading the Bible differently than just absorbing data. It's always about trying to have that data change my behavior, my life, my my, my expression of that truth. As Paul said, you can have a lot of knowledge and know everything, but if you don't have love, you're nothing. And the point is, you're not, love is not a feeling, by the way. It's, I'm, I'm putting that to work. And, and we put it to work, not because we're even just dutifully doing what he says, because the Pharisees would do a lot of what he said, right? They were tithing even down to the spices in their cupboards. But when there was a need and they needed to show compassion or they needed to give or sacrifice, they, in some practical way, they, weren't, they didn't want to do that. I'll give you my tithe of my spices, but I'm not willing to help someone I don't like. Um, but a love relationship with the God who is our king is going to submit your authority to them. It's like knowing about someone on Wikipedia, but then being in a relationship with them, and then they want like to go get tacos, and you want to do Italian. You know, you, you have to change your life. And that word refuse, you, you, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life. I'm quoting Jesus here. Right? But you don't understand that these all bear witness and testify to me. They, they're speaking to me, but you refuse to come to me. Um, so there has to be this brokenness of our will. And if you really engage in evangelism with people enough, you'll find that's usually the problem. It's not a problem here. They know enough about God to respond. They, they are not willing to submit to the king of kings. Yeah. 
Why don't you stand up, Asha? Thank you. Yes. We want to see you. <laughs> uh, uh. Okay. Uh, yeah, th this is fantastic opportunity. But he's holding the mic, unfortunately. That's because he wants to hold on to it. <laughs> he, he wants to have it. Okay. Yes. Question is, yes. Uh, you know, where can I give reference to people when they don't show spiritual maturity in spite of knowing Bible by heart? They, right. will, they will give references, they will talk, yeah. and, I, you know, and I will feel really small in their presence. Yes. But in, the, in their behavior, in their attitude with others, uh, showing kindness and respect mm. to all uh, Christian brothers mm. and sisters is lacking. And I come across uh, you know, a good number of people, not one person. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So yeah. uh, I would like to give them some references. Why don't you work on this? Yeah. Uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. How do I do that? Right, right. Well, uh, I can tell you this. There's a lot of um, concern about what do we do in terms of how can we construct some kind of plan to reform this person when I think the thing we need to spend our biggest effort on, depending on our tightness of the relationship, is we need to be praying for them and interceding for them because the battle, much like our first question, is a spiritual battle. It's a battle in their hearts to really put the truth into practice. Therefore, i got to be praying for God to do that because I can give them more information. Now it's my information and my commentary on the biblical data that you already have in your mind. It's more data. I need to be praying that their heart would be softened and to say, well, you need to soften your heart, soften your heart, soften your heart. I, I just think it needs to be more than telling them what to do or here's the plan. So what we want, I think, is um, a deeper prayer life of intercession for people that we see know a lot but aren't loving God enough to do what he says. And of course, if there's opportunities for you know, a, 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 a correction, depending on the relationship, yeah, then you go and you point out the distinction. Uh, and I even like you quoted, you didn't say the title of the book, but Knowledge of the Holy by, by A.W. Tozer, Chicago pastor, uh, since deceased. But uh, that book in trying to show that a knowledge of God should always lead to a kind of expression in your life, they need to read those kinds of books, not just uh, you know the Bible data books, because there's a lot of systematic theology books, and I'm all for those. You should read them all, but um, you need to read books, too. They're going to take that information and challenge you to do something about it. Right? Because, again, we know everything, but if we're not responding appropriately in our lives, we're, we're nothing, Paul said. Yeah, in the back. Hi. Hi. Uh, this is a question that my former colleague wanted to ask last service, but we ran out of time. And so for someone who does not want to get the COVID vaccine, but has an employer who's requiring it, um, how, would you, how would you guide them um, when they have the option to put in a religious or medical exemption? Do what you want. Don't lie. Uh, get another job if you want to not take it. Um, Take it, keep your job. Um, yeah, I mean, you're gonna have to make some decisions, right? I mean, you, I, yeah, you're gonna have to decide whether you wanna take it or not. Yeah, yeah, maybe follow up there. So if they're going for the religious exemption, yeah. um, how would you, is there, is there any like, scriptural passage that you could uh, kind of use to right. you know, help your argument or... Well, some theologians would put it this way. 
there's the religious exemption. To borrow from Doug Wilson here for a second. There's a religious exemption that says, I better figure out something that the government or the authorities will think, okay, that's your religious thing and it works for you, whether it's blood transfusions for the Jehovah Witnesses or Sabbath keeping for the Jews. Okay, all of you believe that? Okay. They're going to stand in judgment as to whether or not that's something within your religious system that works. And so for a lot of people, they're looking for, like, is there embryonic, you know, uh, um, embryonic dependency in this vaccine, and therefore I'm going to say that because I'm pro-life. And so they try to find that, and then they can check that box in terms of conscience. Okay, well, that, that's one way to go about it um, if, if you want to make a religious exemption to it. But I, it's, it's going to be harder and harder to make those. The um, Christians with fortitude who are going to say, I'm going to make a religious exemption on the fact that you're not the boss of me, um, you can make that. You could make that ultimately to the government if you'd like. Right? There's a lot of that that took place in the American Revolution where they basically said, you're not the boss of me. And there was a lot of preachers and Christian theologians that worked through the problem of the American Revolution. Well, I thought we're supposed to submit to the king. And uh, you had a lot of Christians making different arguments, really six different Christian arguments were made during the American Revolution to decide why I'm going to say yes or no to that. Uh, and that's a different answer. But the point is, uh, some Christians are saying, you're not the boss of me as a governmental entity. You can't tell me what to do. And they'll defer to passages like the two drachma tax when Jesus was asked to pay the temple tax, and he asked Peter, you know, who do they tax? Their own kids, or do they tax the citizens? Or do they tax the citizens, not their kids? Well, okay, well, that's how it is for us, too, because we're really the heirs of the world, and I'm the king of the world. And, but pay it anyway, just so we don't offend anybody. Um, that is used as a basis of, listen, the government doesn't own you, and they can't tell you what to do. Well, this is not a governmental agency. This is an employer, and the employer can ask you to wear, uh, you know, uh, earrings, and if you don't wear earrings, you're going to be fired. And I'm saying if they tell you to wear earrings and you're going to be fired, well, you either wear the earrings or you, or you find another job. Uh, where you can't just find another job, because this is where we live and this is our government, I guess you could go to another country. Well, then the argument for some, particularly the post-millennialists, if you know the theology behind all this, they're going to say, uh, this is Christ's world, Christ's kingdom, and I believe all that, but they're going to say the religious exemption argument is, you're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. Christ is going to tell me what to do. Christ, you're overreaching, and so I'm, I'm not going to do it. Religious exemption, I'm a Christian, I don't have to obey you. They're not going to buy that, but that, for some people, is a consistent religious objection to just about anything. But I've had them in our church, long before COVID, saying, that's why I don't pay taxes. And I'm like, okay, I'll visit you in federal prison. Um, and, and I'm not kidding, I've had a few of them from our church, not recently, end up in federal prison for not paying their taxes. So... Um, you got to make wise decisions living in this world. I do know that the government is not the boss of me. I get that. I know that my employer is not the boss of me. I get that too. I answer to God. Ultimately, I'm God's servant. I get all that. But I have to function in the world. When it comes to this, you may have reasons for not taking the, the vaccine, um, and, and, and they may be good reasons. And you may say, well, I'm not going to take it. Well, then don't take it. Um, but I can't sit here and say, well, magically, you say these words and your employer will change their mind about making you take it. Uh, or if you say, I want to make a religious exemption, what should that religious exemption be? Well, you could find something and say, well, it's this, even though I don't think even the embryonic uh, carrier that constitutes basically the soup, if you will, that builds the vaccines throughout a lot of the vaccines people take. That's a different answer you're not asking. But 
the point would be, yeah, you could do that or you could just say, like a lot of people, I'm just going to say no because I'm a Christian and I don't answer to you. They'll say, great, well, you're not going to get a paycheck from us either. So that'll end that employment relationship. I get it. I don't like what's happening, but I'm just telling you, I don't know how to help that person other than to say, if your employer requires it, which more and more governmental employers right, are going to require it, then you either take it or find another job. And it's happening in all kinds of industries, right? Whether you're a teacher or a medical professional, and I'm not just talking about the COVID, uh, COVID vaccination. I'm talking about all kinds of things that they're saying. If you don't do this, right? If you don't support you know, this or engage in, in abortive medications, you could be a pharmacist, who knows what? And you can say, well, I can't do that based on my conscience. You're going to have to lose your jobs. And we're going to have less Christians in a lot of industries for people standing up on principle. I'm not sure the COVID vaccine is on the same level as someone objecting to like abortion or uh, whatever it might be that I'm forced to, to assert the sexual ethics of our culture. But I don't know that I can help that person other than to say, find a new job or take the vaccine. That's your decision. If you have an objection to it or your conscience doesn't allow you to take it, then don't take it. But I can't help you with the fact that you're going to lose your job. I can say that's bad. I wish it, you didn't. Is that, did I miss anything in that? That's the best. I know. Yeah, that's the problem. Hi, good morning, Pastor Hi. Mike. It's a little bit related to the last question. I know that scripture teaches that we are to respect and submit to governmental authority as long as government laws don't force us to go against God's laws. Now, how does this apply to masking and vaccine mandates? Are we to submit and be vaccinated or should we exercise our individual right to make medical decisions? And as a follow-up, also, to what extent should churches take a political stand? Right. Politics ranging from critical race theory on one end to QAnon on the other seems yeah. to be overshadowing the church's Christ-ordained mission. Right. Could you comment on that? Well, I can't say that all these things, just because they're discussed in a political setting, like critical race theory, does not have a theological answer that needs to be around, loudly and, asserted, and, and, and assertively expressed by the church. I'm going to talk about critical race theory because it, it impinges on my theology, and I'm going to tell you, here's why it's wrong, here's why we don't support it, here's why it should be for us as Christians something we fully reject. Um, that's an easier answer for me than the other. The question is, when does the government overreach its bounds of authority in telling us what to do? And I think we're in that period right now where this has obviously been tested beyond measure. And it's gone to the courts, not that the courts are our authority, God is our authority, but in this whole process, right, we've seen the uh, hypocrisy of governmental restrictions, ones that we haven't kept here at our church. The difference is we haven't engaged in the political process of being on the front page of any of the papers because we've hired attorneys and we've made it a case and we've done, I'm not that I'm not grateful for the churches that have been on the cutting edge of that. We've gone about our business here. And some people have asked, well, why haven't you done what this church has done or that church has done? And they held this political rally and they did this. I, I'm not interested in that. But if you look at what we did, I, there's no material difference between what they did other than we didn't clang a pot and, and put a flag behind us and say, we're going to fight the government. We said, we're gonna, when you say we can't sing in church, we're going to go, yeah, sorry, we're going to sing in church. Uh, certainly when you got all these people at the casino that are pulling slot machines and uh, you say that's okay and governmentally protected, but this isn't, we're going to say you're not even consistent with the rules. So you're making, there is obviously a governmental overreach. So I'm going to say, I think you have to, and again, not that many of us understand structures of authority the way we ought to, 
But we have authority in the church and that the pastor should be, you should be looking to your pastors. There's a time to leave a church if you think your pastors have lost their minds. But you may not even agree with your pastors, but if your pastor's in your church, there's not a good biblical reason to leave that church. You ought to uh, trust their leadership. And if they say, we're going to meet, even though the government just told us not to meet, okay, unless you have a personal reason of conscience not to meet, then you should meet. Um, if we don't demand masks, and I've had plenty of angry letters, right? Which, but certainly when we, they were all demanded in, in, in Walmart and they weren't here. Like, okay, well, if you're concerned about that, don't come. Or we sit outside if you'd like. We're going to do this. And uh, we think because these are not consistent mandates. So all of that, you could say, is political in the sense that we are choosing not to do what we've been told to do by our government officials, right? But do I pay my taxes? Yes. Do I stop at the red lights? Yes. Do I, do I keep the laws and ordinances? Do we get permits? For, yes, all of that's true. But we have to be careful, um, at least in thinking Christians, understanding where the kind of blatant inconsistency is, and then say, here's what we're going to do. I think we've done all that, not intentionally quiet, but we haven't been in the news. You haven't seen me on Fox News, uh, maybe because they don't think I'm articulate enough to be on Fox News, but you haven't seen me representing the Church of Christ. You've seen other guys doing that. Right? You see MacArthur and Jack Hibbs and all these guys, and I know these guys, they're friends of mine, but I've, we've saved a lot of money on attorneys by just going about our business and doing our thing. And as I told our pastors at the beginning, I think we need to pray through this every day. We used to meet every day to look at everything. We were tracking statistics. We named a COVID czar among our pastors who carries a scepter and does all his research every day. And so we figured all this out as best we could. We made decisions, and our church has, I think, done wonderfully in, in saying, okay, we haven't forced you guys to do anything, and we haven't, we haven't been, you know, starting a, a revolution. I don't think it's our job to start a revolution. Our job is to preach the gospel, teach the word, and that's what we're trying to do. But people are going to have to make decisions as to where, we, where you get to a place of personal conscience and go, this is absolutely absurd, and you're breaking your own rules that we as a country, rely on. Rights that were given to us by God, right? The whole point of this is that we understand government is not, does not own us as we started, and it is, um, you know, there's times our government's going to tell us to do dumb things, and, and at certain points we go, we're not going to listen, and impinges on our gathering and assembling together as a church. So, anyway, yeah. Good morning, Pastor Mike, campus family. Uh, my question has to do with the Bema Seat Judgment. 2 Corinthians tells us that we're going to stand before uh, Christ to receive rewards, uh, whether uh, what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. Romans 14, 10, and 12 clearly say we'll stand, all of us will stand before the judgment seat of God to give an account of ourselves. And then the passage in 1 Corinthians, which talks specifically about the works, and Corinthians um, in verse 15, that if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So clearly, Scripture teaches we all stand before the judgment seat of God. You've taught us on more than one occasion that what we do here and now matters in the then and there, and that the judgment that a Christian um, stands before God is not about our determining where uh, our eternal destination is or our standing before God, but to give um, an account of how we stewarded our life here on earth. Um, so here's my questions. The first one, does scripture say when the beam of judgment will occur? Is it when we die or is it some sort of a group event? <laughs> and then uh, can you specifically comment on 1 Corinthians 
315, um, the suffering loss part. The, those descriptors, suffering and loss, seem almost antithetical to somebody who has finished, you know, across the eternal line, right? They're in front of Christ, they're in, they're in heaven, but that just seems sort of antithetical. So can you expand on that? Yeah. Well, it's not antithetical because it's there and it's clearly taught. So there's no way around the fact that there will be suffering, a kind of suffering that's not an active penalty, right? But a passive deprivation of reward I would have otherwise received. Right? You look at your life as it's analogized in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, wood, hay, and straw, gold, silver, precious stones in varying amounts. Right? If I get there and I realize, listen, I got all this wood, hay, and straw. I only have this much gold, silver, and precious stones. These were the good works I did. This is the storing up of treasure in heaven that Jesus talked about. I did not apply myself. I didn't even, if it was another night out, I didn't want to go to church. I didn't want to serve. I, I didn't do the stuff I should have. I did a lot of this and that, but I've spent a lot of time you know, learning to surf or whatever, and I spent, I wasted, not that you're wasting time surfing, but, <laughs> but you can. Um, you don't have to do it every day. Anyway, I'm sorry. So all of that piled up stuff, if all of that then at the judgment seat of Christ is, I don't, I, all that's a waste, burned up. It's like when my kid, let's say my kid gets reward, let's say multiple kids, and I, Friday night, and I said, I'm going to reward you with a great set of things if you do this, that, and the other. And so now I surprise them with all the great things. And I say to one kid, because God is not like your parents who try to treat everybody equally, God's not going to treat everybody equally. And for one kid, I give him, a, and just to indulge, a, a, a bowl of ice cream, and I give him a, a jar of licorice, and I give him a red vines. I give him a, uh, you know, a pizza, and I give him a, 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 a root beer float, and, I, and here I give him a bag of pretzels, right? Another kid. And the other kid, I give him an orange, right? None of them are going to starve, but I say, well, do you see why this kid did so well? This kid's over here, it doesn't feel good to get an orange when my brother gets all that. And the point is, you're going to suffer the loss of what you could have had, right? Now, does that mean you're going to be taken to the basement and whipped, right? That's not what that means. There's no active punishment in that. There's a passive suffering in that. Uh, then I think the Bible's very clear. He's going to wipe away all of our tears. We'll get past that. And just like in any organization, like in our church, and I illustrate it this way all the time, if we go out in the parking lot, there's all kinds of cars out there, some beaters and some super nice cars, okay? We all sit here right now without any real concern about that, right? None of you, I hope, are worried about the car that you drove today. As long as it got you here, you're, you're okay. We can all sing worship songs. We can all think about the Bible. We can all think about God thoughts. And it's like, we had a good morning. We go out to the donut table. We're all enjoying fellowship. Go to our cars. You're getting in a beater. Your AC doesn't even work. And you're driving in the latest and greatest. And you're driving in style. There's a differentiation of, of the experience in this afternoon. But there's no difference in, in us being privileged as Christians to gather together. So we're going to get God. As I wrote in that book, uh, 10 Mistakes People Make About Heaven, Hell, and the Afterlife, longest title ever given to a book in the modern era, um, the, we get the ultimate prize, which is God. But with God, you can, you can have your favorite celebrity. I think this is how I illustrate in the book. And you can, I say, I picked your favorite celebrity and I got lunch with you. And, and it's a box of chicken at the park. Or it's the Ritz-Carlton with an ocean view. You, it's this, both of you are thrilled to be with your celebrity friend. Right? And spend the afternoon, ask them all the questions you want. It's a great time. But it's a different experience. 
And all I'm saying is when that's initially meted out, it will be a bit of a wake-up call, a splash of water in your face. Wow, I could have done a whole lot better. That's what God's trying to prevent us from. Okay, when is it going to happen? The Bible's not clear, but I think most people would suggest, as you look at all the data, it seems to fit best after the rapture of the church. It's going to be a group event. I don't know. The one that really matters is you and God. So if other people are there and see it, whatever. I know we're afraid of that, but whatever. Everyone is going to be a sinner in, in heaven and going to getting into heaven, right? They're not going to sin anymore. But I think that's probably the best time to put that on the timeline. So we've got the taking up of the church. He meets us in the air. I think there's the bema seat judgment. Then I think there's the, the marriage supper of the lamb while all the junk is going on in the time of Jacob's trouble. And then we have the establishment of the kingdom. So that's my guess as to when it is. I can't be definitive about that, but it seems to fit best there. I could be wrong, and it could be everybody gets that Bema Seed experience the moment they die. I don't know. But the rewards are not meted out the way that they will be when the eschatological calendar picks up. Yeah, in the back. Uh, Pastor Mike, uh, my name is Paul, and I grew up in communism. My father was a pastor, and one of the problems we had uh, during those times, but it was just because it was communism only. I learned the same thing was happening here when I came to the States with many churches. They were preaching replacement theology. So there were large parts of scriptures we were deprived of being taught and understood because that was the norm. And people who dare to do otherwise, they were considered apostates and they had problems, authorities for preaching of a so-called wrong gospel. And uh, I wanted to ask you how important it is uh, that the churches understand the Bible. In it, uh, we, have, we need uh, to employ correct hermeneutics so we can understand Bible from the very beginning to the very end and how understanding it right affects uh, the state of our preparedness individually and as a church for the second coming of uh, the Lord. Right. right. Well, I would be careful not to differentiate the fact that if you don't share our view of eschatology or even our nuances of Old Testament hermeneutics, that somehow you are apostate. I do think there are problems, and I'm on the same page just based on the way you worded the question. A couple of definitions of words. He used the word hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the way we read the Bible. As it relates to the context of his questions, it means about how we read the Old Testament. Replacement theology is a label that is used to describe people that believe that the church replaces Israel and all the promises to Israel in the Old Testament. And to do that, that affects your Old Testament hermeneutic, how you're going to read the Bible. Talk about the Valley of Dry Bones and God taking a stick of Ephraim and Judah and putting them together and raising up this nation. And then you read the book of Revelation, 144,000 Jewish missionaries from all the 12 tribes of Israel. It all seems to fit for us that believe God is not done with Israel yet, and he's going to fulfill his promises, not only in the time of Jacob's trouble or the 70th week of Daniel or what Jesus called the greatest great tribulation, like no other has ever been on the earth. That's still coming. And that after that, he sets up a thousand-year reign, Revelation chapter 20. It's repeated six times, thousand years, thousand years. That view of thinking that God has a set of promises he's yet to fulfill to Israel is non-replacement theology. Replacement theology is, hey, we've just spiritualized all those promises of the Old Testament to Israel. Let's just say we're all meeting those now. There is no millennial kingdom. If there is, we're living in it now. That's why they call them all-millennialists. All means not. No millennium. No literal millennium. Uh, so how important is that? It's important. That's where every pastor on our staff is. That's what we believe. That's what we teach. 
Um, I don't think you're a heretic if you don't teach that. I do think there's some dangers in how you read the Bible, in the Old Testament in particular. Um, and I'm not sure, and I may need to have you get the mic again, how that relates to communism. There is a sense in which post-millennialism may relate directly to the communistic, socialistic view of things. Um, and that's a perverted version of it because good evangelical post-millennialists don't believe that. But is there a connection to replacement theology and communism that you're making that I'm missing? Um, maybe I didn't uh, say it very okay. clearly, but a way, all the denominations are controlled by the government. Oh, I got you. So all yep. the teaching has to be um, in the, according to what they wanted to hear, and the government was anti-Israel. Right, right, okay, so, I got you. Yeah. So, so that's much better, yeah. And, yeah. It's more than just hermeneutics then. This is an issue of politics as it relates to Israel, state control of, of religion. Yeah, and that's, this is a theme in this service. Um, yeah, we, we need to understand communism has a lot of problems, um, both economic, philosophical, and its claim ultimately in theology, which it does because of its governmental assertion of authority. But the point is that, um, yeah, the, the church and the people in the church should recognize that we do not submit ourselves as an entity under the jurisdiction of the state. Uh, that's why it's been famously discussed in our country, a distinction between the two. Um, not that that's in our constitution, although people think it is, it's not. Uh, the separation of church and state. The ideas are, these are two different institutions of God, and one is clearly primary to the other. The church is primary to the government. The church is primary to the government in a million different ways. Communism, of course, there is no room for that. The church is subservient to the state. And so if you are... Uh, a replacement, believe in replacement theology, you may in some way at least pile on Israel, which of course, if you believe that Israel has no prophetic future as a nation, it's easy to be against Israel. Everyone is, uh, it seems. But um, yeah, we, we, I guess to piece some of those things together, we, we don't submit to the government as an entity, as the church. We should never let the government uh, usurp authority over the church. Uh, we don't, and that's part of what drove, I talked about the revolutionary Christians who struggled with the revolution. Some of them supported it wholeheartedly because of the Church of England, and they said, listen, we cannot have a state-run church. And um, part of what a lot of the preachers were doing during the colonial period, the American revolutionary period, was saying, that's one of the reasons we have to be, we have to rewrite this thing. We need a, a constitutional republic and, and, and this organization that we live under that recognizes that this is about civil, limited government, and the church is the heartbeat of the nation, right? As de, as de Tocqueville said, you can't have this freedom, this nation of freedom without a good, you know, a good, salty, light-bearing church. That's a, it's definitely a paraphrase of de Tocqueville. But um, all I'm telling you is we can't fall under North Korean thinking or old communistic thinking, and the church should never concede that. And I think that is part of the fight that went on, at least within one branch of theology during the uh, revolutionary period. Another tried to find utopia in America. They thought this was the fulfillment of the millennium, and I think their eschatology was wrong as well, um, because we're not post-millennial, at least not here at Compass. But yeah, there's a lot to that question. And there's probably more to it, but let's, for the sake of time, get another one in. Where's the microphone? Over here. Stand up, Kellen will hold that for you. There's really, really so many. Um, 
in the in the churches today, I hear so many so many places. Not here, which is one of the reasons I'm I'm here. Uh, you hear about all we have to do to achieve eternal life is accept Christ and to accept forgiveness. Is there? But what I don't hear is part of that, and I don't know why it, it doesn't seem to be taught anymore. Um, repentance, right? So does God? And I've heard one thing called Christian. One place called it Christian universalism. Is that since Christ died on the cross, He forgave all sin, and therefore everybody is forgiven and everyone goes to heaven, which I think is they haven't read the rest very much of the Bible, but. Um, you do hear that, and people seem to live that way, and it seems to even be in the church where you can achieve or um, go to heaven by accepting Christ, but there's no mention of repentance. So right. basically it boils down, Do you, and I, th- I think I know the answers to this, but um, does God still care about sin, and is there still a place for repentance in uh, us receiving forgiveness and eternal life. Can I tell you why I think the church got to the place that it did in avoiding it all? It came from the rise in American cult groups um, that kept saying, you have to have the biblical message, you have to respond with repentance and faith, then you got to do these things, and then you get to be saved. If you're here last night or you're watching online, that's, I know we dealt with this last night, but that equation became the norm. And Christians said, well, wait a minute, right? We, we're saved by grace through faith, not a, result, not a result of our works that no one should boast. So it's not about all these good works. And good works, really, if you think about it, is the difference between me not doing them and then doing them. That's called repentance, right? I'm turning from not doing them to doing them, turning from whatever I am doing to doing what God says. Um, so they said, well, we're not going to emphasize that because that's what the cults say. And instead, they created this thing as to, to where we'll teach about God's truth and the gospel in Christ, and then we'll tell you to respond to it by trusting, or in that case, you use the, the word accepting, which is not a, a biblical word. The closest we get to it is in John chapter 1, where it talks about received, right? He came into his own and received him not, but whoever does receive him. There's a lot more to that. I mean, he's talking about a national coming of the Messiah to Israel, and they did not embrace him. Well, there were terms in embracing him. And Jesus kept using the words repentance and faith, right? In Mark chapter 1, he came preaching the kingdom of God, right? He, he was saying the gospel of the kingdom, repent and believe in the gospel. So repentance and faith have always been the determinative response to the message. But what people have done is say, well, take the message and take the response, and then you get salvation. What they've forgotten is there's the, the necessary role of good works, which demands repentance. But it doesn't come on this side of the equal sign. It comes on this side of the equal sign. So it's the message of the gospel, it's the response, the right response, really putting your trust in Christ, right? Which, if you want to talk about the words there, it's repentance and faith. And that equals you being saved at the moment you do that. And what's going to come out of that necessarily is good works, which means you've repented. So there has to be repentance. There has to be. Without repentance, there's no salvation, right? Luke 13, Luke 24, he went to, we're out to give a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's what we're calling people to do. Repentance is a two-sided coin. You got repentance which means I'm turning from sin to God. The other side is faith. I'm trusting in Christ. I trust in Christ, right? These are distinguishable, but inseparable, right? We can define them as distinct. I'm trusting in Christ. And when I do that, I recognize then he's my king. He's my leader. I turn from my independent way, an autonomous way, and I trust in him. I submit to him. That is going to produce good work. So much so that you could describe it that way. 
You could describe it as James 2 describes it. If you say you have faith, but no good works, can that save faith, can that faith save you? And the answer is no, right? Can't. That's the whole point of, of the first part of James chapter 2. You can't be saved by a faith that doesn't produce works. And you think, well, wait a minute. That's kind of dangerously close to the cults. Well, no, it's not. You just got to get the equal sign in the right place. I don't earn my salvation by my works, but I read the rest of Romans 2, 8, and 9. I read verse 10, which says we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. Then that has to be a part of the message. I'm calling people, to quote Acts 26, to repent and prove their repentance by their deeds. Even if you only have a little bit of time, you ought to be proving your repentance by your deeds. On the thief on the cross, did he prove his repentance by his deeds? Yeah, he's telling the guy on the other side of Christ to, to shut up, right? You're maligning Christ. He is being a repentant person. He didn't get baptized, didn't give to the church. He never walked an aisle. He didn't do any of that. I bet if he got off the cross, he would do it. Why? Because real faith produces good work. So you have to preach repentance. Without repentance, right? You're not going to seek God without repentance. Repentance is required, right? Oh, you're earning your salvation. Not any more than faith. And if you, well, it has to be a gift of God. It is a gift of God. Matter of fact, it says that, and we've already studied this in Acts, right? He's going to grant repentance to us. Just like it says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that this gift is a gift that not only includes salvation, it, 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 it includes faith. God gives us that enablement to believe him. He gives us that enablement to repent. So I think, and I only went back in time because I think the rise of the cults in America in particular took the American gospel and truncated into something which you just have to be careful where you put the role of good works. As it's put endlessly, right? The faith that saves us is faith alone, right? But faith that does save us is never alone, right? It always brings works with it. Good question. Yeah. Hi, Pastor. I'm having issues understanding the difference between our spirit and our soul. Could you please give me an example or an overview of where the Christians who die today, uh, is it the spirit or the soul that's immediately present with the Lord and later is the body resurrected upon Christ's return. I mean, what do you think? Is there a separation of timeline or why would God place this separation of timeline between our spirit or soul and our new body joining together? Is that part of this resurrection? Is that the symbolism? I'm yeah, I don't think he does. I, yeah, and, the, and, and I say it's not that you can't make distinctions in the immaterial part of human beings. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And those are all immaterial parts, right? even my strength, the energy to do what I do, it's expressed through my physical body. So I have no problem with us using different words to describe those things. But I think we're dichotomous, not trichotomous. They believe that God made us out of the dust of the earth. That's the physical part of us, right? He breathed into us the breath of life. That's the spiritual part of us. And we became a living being or a living soul. In other words, when a captain is in a sinking ship, he radios to how many souls on board, right? I mean, how many people are there? People means people that are physical, enmeshed, and containing a spirit. So that teaching is very common. And as guys like Kim Riddlebarger puts it, this really comes out of a uh, Platonistic, um, pagan, and again, not to be disparaging, but a, a pagan kind of philosophical thinking about human nature. Uh, I don't think we can derive it from the Bible, even though the word soul and spirit are used in the Bible. I think if you look at the word and the use of soul, usually used to describe the whole of a person, spirit, the immaterial part of a person, the body, obviously the physical part of the person. So we got body, we got spirit, that makes someone who we would consider a soul. 
They have a mind. Is that distinct? No. People have built entire theologies, even here locally, some of the big churches have built big theologies on the distinction between soul and spirit. They say soul is connected to human appetites and spirit is connected to God appetites. I just can't find that distinction. That's a lot of creative thinking. In my mind, it's imaginative thinking, but I can't root it in scripture. Good men disagree with me on that. Good women disagree with me on that. I get that. But my view is that I'm a dichotomist. I believe that human beings are two parts. I think you can describe the immaterial part with a lot of different words. I think soul describes, generally speaking, in the usage throughout the Old and New Testament, the whole of a person. Follow up? Yeah. So why wasn't our body, bodily resurrection mentioned in the Old Testament? Or was it? Progressive revelation. Oh, it is. Daniel chapter 12. says those who sleep in the dust of the earth will arise, some to light. Yeah, Daniel 12. Um, but that's late. Think about that. That's exilic. That's 6th century BC revelation from God. I don't think we had that early on in the book of Genesis. We have in the Pentateuch. We don't have a lot of that. God did not hand Moses 66 books of the Bible, right? We got this in installments. Increasingly, none of it's contradictory. It's just that we didn't have all the details. And I think by the time we get to the end of um, the monarchy, which is the beginning of the exilic period, God makes clear in Daniel while they're in the doghouse of Babylon there's going to be a physical resurrection. And I think you get hints of that elsewhere. It's like the Trinity. Right? How clear was the Trinity? Well, it wasn't super clear, and yet God left room for it all over the place in the Old Testament. Then progressive revelation made it super clear. Some kind, sometimes God in progressive revelation changes some of the rules. You could marry your sister before Moses, right? And then you couldn't. Well, part of that I think was practical, right? You, 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 there's a lot of problems with a degenerating, uh, you know, genetic pool, but it was all fine and not a sin until God said it was a sin, and then it became sinful. That's progressive revelation for a practical reason. God gives us more information. Even plural marriage, right, I think was part of that as well. Um, and, and God says, no, let me clarify what we're talking about. It was Adam and Eve, you should have followed that pattern. Let me make that clear. You can't even be a pastor and have more than one wife. Old Testament, all kinds of heroes of the faith, multiple wives, not an issue. There's a lot of issues I think you could try to maybe explain why God might have done that, but it's all guess, guesswork. The point is progressive revelation about things that are going to happen to us after life, God gave us more and more information as time went on. But the time of the New Testament, Jesus has given us all kinds of information we didn't have in the Old Testament. So that's why it wasn't there very clearly. It is super clear in Daniel. Uh, and there are other places too. Even the metaphorical use of the dry bones and the valley of dry bones you have the picture of this. God's going to raise the dead. You have so much clarity that by the time Jesus asks Martha in John 12 about the resurrection, she says, yeah, I know he's going to be raised up again. She knew that. Where'd you get that? The teaching of the Bible. Was it very clear? Not very clear. But Jesus made it clear. The apostles made it clear. Progressive revelation would be my answer to that. Hi, Pastor yes. Mike. Hi. Thank you for your service. You're welcome. Um, I, you know, I drive from South County to Los Angeles. I see a lot of homelessness. Uh, Pre-pandemic, it was bad. Post, worse. And I think it's going to be even worse than that. Um, in James 127, talks about uh, that we should minister to the widows and the orphans. And then in Matthew, what is it, uh, 26.11, uh, Jesus says that the poor will be with you always. You know, you need to be looking at me. Uh, what do you say the Bible says about ministering to the homeless now? 
Yeah. Well, that's a very, very difficult thing for a couple of reasons. Um, if you really understand Scripture, Scripture helped the problem of the poor not by giving them a handout unless you were absolutely incapable of work. For instance, the built into the ag agricultural system of the Old Testament was I couldn't even, I couldn't reap my fields to the corners. I had to leave the corners for anyone who wanted to come and glean from the corners of my field. So if you were poor, you didn't have any food, you could go to the corner of any field of anyone's property and you could go pick enough food to eat and live. Um, but you had to work for it. That's a principle that we see throughout the scripture all the way into the New Testament in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, if you're not willing to work, you shouldn't eat. Okay, are there exceptions to that? Well, yeah. If you didn't have Social Security, if you didn't have insurance, if you didn't have social services, right? If someone was uh, paralyzed and couldn't work, someone was blind, someone couldn't see, they became dependent on the charity of other people, and other people were to give to them. We're in a day that's super different for two reasons. One is we're in a huge social safety net culture, right? There is not a person that can't get a, a warm meal in our culture today. You can see all the commercials about children starving and all that. I, I would challenge the statistics on that. I've looked at all that, and I'm not saying everyone gets to eat whatever they want, but I am saying there's a million things, in, both in government and in charitable organizations, that are, take care of all that, but it comes with stipulations. Like when I've been preaching at the rescue mission, for instance, you have to come in, and you can't be on drugs, and you have to listen to a sermon, and you got requirements to get your meal and your free warm bed to sleep in at night. Um, most people... Uh, who are on the street don't want to do any of that. That's one part of it. So for me to say, if I see someone that's poor, I'm going to give them some money. If they're at Costco in the parking lot, oh man, here's, here's a 20. Um, by the way, the studies on that is people are making six figures, no tax, by the way, doing that kind of stuff in our culture. Um, yeah, but she had a sign and had a kid in a stroller. Oh, I understand, but I'm telling you, the, the Bible addresses that. It's a third-person imperative. I cannot enable someone to forego their duty and responsibility in life to provide for their own family. They're worse than an unbeliever, the Bible says, we are as Christians, if we don't do that. Therefore, my encouragement should always be for people to do their jobs. Now, are there some people that can't? Right. We live in a society with a lot of different organizations to get that done. The church, first, let me quote 1 Timothy 5. Again, I know I'm getting in scary territory for some of you. Oh, heartless Republican you must be. Listen. <laughs> 1 Timothy 5 says this about the church. He says, you shouldn't put a widow on the list who in the first century culture was dependent on someone, right? Because, I mean, she couldn't go out and get a, some administrative position somewhere. Um, maybe she didn't have any children, right? She's in a tough spot. Paul says, have them get married, okay? Um, don't put them on the rolls of the church, don't let them be a financial burden to the Christians in Ephesus. That's what Paul is saying in, in 1 Timothy 4 and 5. The point of his concern, right, is there are ways to solve this, including extended families, and the church should be focusing on and investing in the mission it's sent to do, which is not the social gospel, right? Individual, for instance, if someone has a flat tire, I'm going to stop and help them, right? We need to help people. We need to be compassionate people. Right? But I'm not going to aid people in not doing what they ought to do. That, that's one whole issue, and we could go a lot further on that. The other issue is the mental health crisis, to put it in secular terms, that we have in our culture. Back in the day, right, we could commit people who, who were crazies right, and, and put them in a place where they would be cared for. Today, you can't do that. right? All the rules have changed. So now we're dumping people that are nuts, right, to, to use the technical term for it, out into 
out into society, and I'm not disparaging them, right? I'm a little nuts myself. But the point is, there's, 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 there's no way for us to fix the problem with our current policies in our, in our country. We, we have to get back to some reasonable standards. Uh, if you went down, you know, in Anaheim, you could go along the, the river there or the flood control, whatever it was, for miles and see tent cities. You want to allow that like they do in L.A. and ever? You're, of course. It happened in San Clemente. Some of you live in San Clemente, right? The, the tent cities down there. All I'm saying is that there needs to be a reasonable response to that. And the Christian is not going to say, oh, we're supposed to be compassionate. If anyone asks for something, I'm supposed to give it to them, right? No, you need to understand, I'm told by the scriptures not to give in particular situations. Am I to give in some? Absolutely. I just got to be intelligent and know what those situations are. And I'm not going to give my money that I should be giving to the Lord, to his work, right? In situations where I know this is a violation of scripture. I cannot aid and abet someone in disobeying God, and I shouldn't, right? But I'm not going to let someone starve to death on my front lawn either, right? I'm not even going to let someone who's got a flat tire not get where they're going. I'm going to stop and help them. We are going to help each other in our societies, and we ought to. But the church needs to understand it's not as simple as, oh, there's someone who didn't have a home. I'll, get, I'll, write my, I'll have them live in my condo. That's not going to solve the problems that we have today, certainly with drug addiction, mental health issues, as the world calls it, um, and people that just say, Paul calls them busybodies in Thessalonica, who just, I'm not interested. I, I can get everything I need here, and, and I'll sleep on, on your beach. I know that's complicated. I could go a lot further on that, but uh, I know it's hard. Here's something I think Christians think. The default should always be compassion for everyone whenever they say there's an issue. And all I'm telling you is the Bible says you can have misplaced compassion, and you need to make sure your compassion is put in the right place, and it's biblically allowable. For instance, if someone was caught doing something capital offense and they go to be executed in Israel, the Bible says, show them no mercy. I should not have pity on them, even though it's going to be hard for me to watch them be stoned to death or to be executed or to have a sword put through them. I'm supposed to say, I got to understand right now, this is not the time for compassion. And, and there are times when we have to say, can't do that. What about 1 John chapter 3? If you see a brother in need and you close your heart, you got no compassion, well, how can the love of God exist in you? You can quote those passages in isolation and not understand the rest of Scripture that says there are times when he says just the opposite depending on the circumstance. My brother is in need. I'm not going to shut my heart toward them. And I'm not going to shut my heart even toward my neighbor. I'm the first one in my neighbor's house. If something shows up, I will be there to help them. It's not about that. It's about understanding the larger situation and knowing sometimes the best thing we could do is if we didn't let any of these things happen, which I know individually we can't stop it, there would be a necessary change. We'd get back to some certain policies that have prevented this for centuries. And, and it has prevented it in most of civilized world for centuries. And the social safety nets have helped people that would be otherwise sitting there begging. And even if they were, we could get back to the time when they did beg and, because they needed to. And we would say, okay, well, that's part of the system. But even in Israel, you had to take a triennial tax for the orphans and the widows. And that went to the government and the government supported them. It was the early social safety net of Israel and that was something meted out by the leaders who would help those people because every third year you had to give 10% of a three-year wage to the government so that they could deal with the widows and orphans of the culture. And right now, we're giving a lot in our taxes, and there's a lot out there. And again, I don't want to go too far down this road. I know I've hacked half of you off already, so I'm sorry. But I can expand on that at some point. Maybe I should preach on that, and we can go deeper on that.
Yes, question. All right, maybe a lighter one. Uh, okay. Asaph's beautiful psalms. Yes. Some of them certainly, in my mind, seem to point to a future time. Yes. From Asaph, from David's time, so right. 74, 79. Do you attribute them to some member of a future choir of Asaph, or are they prophetic and from the Asaph of David Solomon's time? Okay, I need more on that. Yeah, I do think they're the Asaph of David's court, musicians. Yeah, right. that's who I think Asaph so it's is. prophetic in its thinking, even the remorseful time, like it seemed to point to the exilic time when, you know. Well, I do think the Psalms are a collection that includes exilic periods. From written from Asaph. Is well, you got to remember, some of these are dedicated. Well, first of all, go to a Bible dictionary and look up Asaph and you'll find there's about, I don't yes. know, I'm guessing six of them in scripture. Right. So you got to be careful which Asaph we're talking about. But there was an Asaph with David, contemporaneous with David, who was a chief musician and, and even psalms that are said psalms of David, that genitive, as we call it in, in grammar, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that David wrote it, right? Because some of them are clearly prayers about David, the king, right? To save the king. I don't think those are necessarily coming from David's pen. And I don't think all of the ones that are dedicated with a superscription to Asaph necessarily were written by the Asaph of David's musical court. Some are prophetic, clearly. And if you see the cycles of pain within the Psalms, some of them clearly are replicated nationally in the exile. So, um, and I've done the study before and I can't remember off the top of my head, but I do know there's an Asaph later than David's Asaph that I, I'd have to look all that up. But um, yeah, I do think plenty of the Psalms are prophetic. Psalm 110, I mean, there's so many Psalms that are looking toward the future. You're talking about the nearer future, which is the exile which if you think about it, is 500 years after David's time, right? So um, yeah, it may necessitate me sitting down, well, you can sit down and do all the work, but just looking through the Asaphs of scripture, looking at the particular Psalms you're looking at, and then seeing whether or not this might be a dedicatory superscription, or whether it's a superscription that attributes the writing to the Asaph that's contemporary with David. Yeah, that's a hard question. One, let's do one more, can we do one more? Where's, where are the mics? Back here. In the back. Okay, there you are. Oh. Got to be a good question. It's coming from someone sitting in the back corner of the auditorium. It's, a, it's, it's probably a much shorter answer. I don't know. It's not even, it's a Bible question, but it's not even theological. Okay. Uh, okay. It's just something I've wondered about for a long time and cannot find an answer for it. This is it. Why did the children of Israel beg and plead for meat when they had all their cattle and flocks with them and permission to eat meat ever since the flood. Right. Well, they didn't ask for meat because it was prohibited on the kosher list, because that's true. So to answer the last part, that's not the reason. The basic answer generally given to that question is that when they left Egypt with their flocks and herds, okay, you could not sustain this traveling multitude right, by us just eating all of our milk-producing hide-producing animals. In other words, you weren't grazing in a pasture with a multiplying flock, right? Not that they couldn't eat some of that, but they, they pled for something beyond the manna because they wanted, they wanted meat. Could they have eaten some of their flocks? They could have. But I think they're a lot smarter than we... They're not knuckle-dragging dummies that think, hey, let's just eat all this today because tomorrow, well, let's let tomorrow figure itself out. They're wandering around in the Arabian desert. So I think they were very judicious about their flocks. I think they saw them as essential for travel, essential for sustenance, essential for the dairy, essential for a lot of what they did. 
and they weren't going to slaughter them all to have hamburgers. And, and, and I think that's why they were craving a, a supplement, an, an answer, beyond the flakes of cornflakes that they got off the lawn. Yeah, there's a follow-up there. Just a thumb up. Oh, a thumbs up. Okay. All right. Well, it's 1230, and we've been everywhere in this conversation. But it's time now to come in for a landing. So let me pray with you, and then I'll let you get on with your Sunday. God, thank you for our church. Thank you so much for our desire to know what you say in your word and how to rightly understand that. And we've covered a lot of topics, but I pray some of it would be a catalyst for us to love you more, to serve you better, to understand you in this world against the backdrop of a lot of different opinions better. Give us clarity. Even though people in this room may not agree with everything that was said here, I pray at least it would be a motivation for us to study your word more deeply and to think more openly about uh, how we might understand and apply your word. And God, I just I thank you for the church that I get to preach to every weekend for their receptivity. We do pray now, right now, specifically for what's going to happen on this stage as soon as we're out of this building and they set up for revival. And there's so many things going on with our high school students and our junior high students this week. Uh, give me grace to preach to them well the next five days. And I pray it would be an awesome opening night to that here tonight. And pray even if we have needs that our church would step up uh, with personnel needs or whatever might be left as we've scrambled to move our reservation from the mountain to this uh, business park. And that's going to be hard, but I pray you'd bless it, make it the most spiritually significant week for our teenagers all summer, if not in their entire lives to this point. So we commit the week to you. We thank you for our time of talking about a variety of topics. Uh, dismiss us now with your protection and your blessing in our lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.